Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, June 14th, 843 0937. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. So today is the day we preempt the normal sports uh sports break. It won't be a break, it's the start of the show. <laughs> the sports um section of Wake Up Carolina, brought to you by Bird of a Thousand Gods. Mm-hmm. We'll we'll uh, we'll skip that this morning um in deference to today being campaign election day around the country um what is it is it uh, nevada north dakota uh, south carolina and that mean yeah maine are all having primaries today we are um very interested in the affairs of the seventh congressional district in south carolina um uh, city council races county council races um selections not elections that's what we need to remember here. The Republican Party is selecting its nominee. The Democrat Party are selecting uh, their nominees. We went yesterday and talked to Drew McKissicker, had him on the show and talked about, you know, um, Democrats crossing over into Republic, yeah, Republican primaries. And um, Carl has advocated for Republicans crossing over voting in the Democrat primaries in the 6th Congressional District. In this case, um, we'll see. You know, we'll, uh, we'll find out by this time tomorrow morning exactly what we have on our hands as it relates to the 6th Congressional District, the 1st Congressional District, the 7th Congressional District. A, um, I'm thinking about a hotly contested county council race in our part of the country, uh, that being between Buddy Brand and he's the incumbent, and William Schofield, who is on city council, now seeking election in county council. So um, as you laid down last night, did you do your dead-level best? I mean, in all honesty, when you put your name on that sign, when you pay your filing fee, um, some for every winner, there's a loser. For every one candidate that it works out for, there's a candidate that it didn't work out for, and well, we de- shall see. Describe to me that feeling, because you have been a candidate, obviously, and this is election day, and and we've got we've had a chance to meet a lot of these candidates uh, through the course of these campaigns. So today is election day. How do you feel? You is tend it- to believe the last person you spoke to. You, okay. you really do. You tend to believe um, I'm going to win by 12 points. And then somebody says, man, I think this thing's going to be closer than you think it is. Um, now, we've made a lot of advances in polling recently. Um, some of the sampling has gotten more proficient. And um, and I think most candidates go to bed at night. Now, I'm not talking about a council race. I doubt a county council or a city council race or a mayoral race. I'm not talking about in New York or somewhere like that, but in, in the cities of which we broadcast, I doubt there's a lot of polling done. Um, in the 7th Congressional race, the one we paid a lot of attention to, because it's a Trump-centric race, I think every candidate goes to bed tonight, uh, whether they admit it publicly or not, understanding about the range of which they'll they'll finish. Um, we've heard candidates come on this show, and you've heard them off the record. They don't say it over the airwaves. But uh, during uh, during the breaks, they'll confide in me. I don't believe the polls. Um, well, I mean, if you're at eight percent the poll, makes sense to not believe in the poll because you got to believe you're doing a little bit better uh, than that. But no, I mean, it's uh, in my you know the, the county council races I ran in, I had no idea. I mean, in 2004, when I threw my hat in the ring, I didn't have any idea. I mean, I was running against an incumbent, a former state senator, who actually ran for lieutenant governor back in the 70s in a district that never elected a Republican. So I didn't have much expectation. In fact, I went to register to vote just so I could vote for myself to secure that one. My wife was undecided. She came around uh, toward the end. But um, so I had nothing to, to, to gauge it upon. I had no evaluations, no previous evaluations. Uh, by the time I ran for lieutenant governor, I had a yeah, I, I had an understanding 
you know, I've, I'm, not, I'm not saying I was brilliant by any stretch, and I didn't have uh, the vast wealth of knowledge that someone like Thigpen has in recounting election after election and the sentiment of the voter. But but I did I did have a pretty good understanding, and the majority of my understanding came from Robert Cahaley. You know, he was my consultant uh, slash pollster. In fact, I was thinking about this last night. Um, Robert didn't do our polls. Robert was more in, uh, he was a consultant at the time um, and kind of sort of built the mousetrap to find the Trump voter. And, um, and, you know, Robert would never give me credit for this, but I often wonder, because I would talk to Robert a lot about, Robert, there's something out there you're not missing, that you're missing, man. What do you mean? Well, I mean, it was the Trump phenomenon. I mean, it was a little bit, I was kind of, um, I don't want to say I'm a visionary. I'm certainly not. But I was a little bit visionary in anticipating something that I saw coming. In fact, I think I told you. Uh, the first few days we were on the air. Um, Rev, the eventual political contest of our generation will not be conservative liberal. I mean, there's that. Of course there is. There's always that. Big government, small government. Um, fiscal insanity, fiscal responsibility. But I think I told you, this will eventually be the insiders versus the outsiders. Mm-hmm. Um, those who are politically connected have um, strong political ties, and those who don't and feel disenfranchised uh, left out and kind of left behind. And that's kind of where we are today so i think i saw that in a weird way um but in my lieutenant governor's race i mean my polling was pretty consistent we were always ahead in the primary not substantially but we're always ahead in the primary and then south carolina's a plus eight red state um i was plus 11 so i felt pretty comfortable once i got through the primary now the primary is a grind because you're fighting for the same universe of people um the 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 generals are very different because I know who's not voting for me. I mean, I know there aren't many Republicans in Jasper County. I understand there aren't many Republicans in certain um, districts in Charleston. Uh, I know there's a lot of Republicans in Greenville. So you get kind of, um, there's a, there's a better way to understand it. We're not fighting for the same voters. Ashley Cooper was a Democrat lawyer that I ran against in 2010. Ashley knew where his strongholds were. I knew where my strongholds were. And we both knew where the independents were. And that's where we were trying to go get and target. In the primary, I mean, I'm trying to convince conservatives, uh, just like the five or six other people in the race are trying to get convince conservatives. And I think primaries toughen you up. I think they make you better uh, in the long run. I know we have this, this kind of mindset of, man, if I could be unopposed and do nothing but run against a Democrat, well, of course, in South Carolina, you, you've got the upper hand. But I think you're a better candidate. And I think... The, the voters, the Republican voters of South Carolina deserve primaries. I really believe that. You have a chance to vet the candidates, put them under fire, listen to their answers, watch them behave when someone says unpleasant things about them. Um, that's just kind of the, uh, the – I was thinking about this yesterday. Who embodies American politics? Well, to me, it's Jefferson. I mean, to me, Jefferson was, uh, as is, the embodiment of American politics. Jefferson is American politics at its worst simultaneously American politics at its best. Thomas Kidd is like, I thought we didn't do, I thought you would ask me something similar to that this morning. Uh, Thomas Kidd is a research professor, uh, I guess, church history at Baylor University. And um, what I'm trying to think, the um, the Gospel Coalition is something he's kind of known for. And um, he's written books uh, about the history of America, its founding fathers, who was evangelical, uh, the religious life of a founding father, Benjamin Franklin, um, Baptist in America, history. In other words, Baylor is a Baptist university. He is a renowned research scholar when it comes to 
how much theology is involved in American politics, um, how spiritual were American founding fathers, and he just wrote his first book ever on Jefferson. And uh, I've got it on the way. <laughs> I don't have it in my hands yet, but I've got it on the way. It's actually called A Biography of Spirit and Flesh. So you know where we're headed here. You know, the secular Thomas Jefferson, uh, the spiritual Thomas Jefferson, um, in his uh, in his articulating of why he decided to write the book. And he's a renowned scholar. I mean, Thomas Kidd is someone taken uh, very seriously by some of the creme de la creme of American politics and American faith. Um, but Kidd... Um, said he's always been very curious about Jefferson. Oh, who's not? You know, if you're interested in politics, faith, and the convergence of those. But but I, I read some of his, um, I gave a speech at, uh, it might have been Monticello. Uh, they invited him up to basically uh, answer, do a Q&A and talk a little bit about Jefferson. And he says that um, Jefferson's moral universe was a unification of God, man, and liberty. Now, now, he tries to articulate that, I would imagine, in a, in a sellable and commercial sort of way. His books have always been big sellers. Um, they've been big sellers amongst those who consider themselves um, political intellects, you know, those who want to dig a little deeper in what made Franklin tick, um, what sort of evangelical spirit was within the founding fathers, Christianity, um, God, spirituality, all those sorts of things. Um, so when I think of Election Day, and I get goofed up when I go down this road, I always go to Jefferson. I mean, my mind always goes to Jefferson uh, because I do think he embodies today more than anybody in American history, um, the the thinker of America. You know, we talk about Jefferson, excuse me, um, Washington led the troops into battle. So George Washington uh, was the, uh, the soldier. You know what I mean? He was the, um, I told you, I've never seen a statue. Uh, I walked around the statehouse grounds many days, on, especially on pretty days. We'd have a break in the Senate, and I'd walk around and just kind of, um, just, just, I don't know, not necessarily reflecting, but trying to uh, understand better hmm. South Carolina history. Never saw a picture. I think there's two or three pictures and statues of George Washington, and every one he's got a sword. And it kind of dawned on me one day, wow, okay. He was not just an American president. I mean, he led troops into battle in the name of liberty and freedom. Um, I don't know that I've ever seen many pictures of Jefferson where they're probably in the book nearby, you know, or some sort of writing utensil. I mean, he wrote and he thought and he read about, you know, the country and what it meant to have free and fair elections. Um, so, yeah, when I come to today, um, and I, I remember this, uh, walking around a parking deck in 2010, um, I kind of sort of knew I was going to win but I still wanted a cigarette, and I'm not a smoking man. Um, you <laughs> wow. know, you, well, I'm that nervous. <laughs> right. You know, when you kind of want that fix, and I just heard friends of mine who would smoke, uh, that's the best cigarette I've ever smoked in my life. Well, I mean, the anxiousness, the, the inner turmoil wow. that you're dealing with, the, the realization that your life's about to change, I mean, that's kind of a weird way It's probably to a say combination this. of nerves and excitement yeah. and, and relief. Well, I mean, you want it to be over. You know, we heard Tom Rice yesterday. We've heard Russell Fry say, Ken Richardson, Barbara Arthur, all those that Garrett Barton, all those that have been in the studio. Um, I talked to William Schofield for a second last night. Um, he's like fist bumping. I said, you feel that good? And I'm just ready for it to be over. I'm just ready for it to be over. Because you basically, let me think of this, guys. Um, how many of you would ask everybody in your universe? I'm not talking about your friends, but everybody in your universe. How many of you would really like to know who likes you and who doesn't? 
I mean, it's got to stew on that for a second. You've got a big universe that could of people. be humbling. Sure it could. <laughs> Absolutely could be humbling. Um, I mean, if there was a truth serum and everybody in your orbit had to take that truth serum and you got a chance to go by and say, hey, what do you think of me? And they honestly, truthfully told you, well, I'm not talking about close friends. I mean, close friends through thick and thin, right? You know, man, you got some things about you I don't like, but you're my friend. And we've, we've, we've earned one another's friendship um, through life and living and learning and whatever it throws our way, we deal with together. But some of these more passive, uh, you know, uh, acquaintances you have, what, what, if you, some, what if you had a truth serum and you could give it to uh, the, the 150 people of which you interact with and they honestly, truly told you, well, a political candidate puts his name on a sheet of paper and you either choose him as your favorite or someone else. And my wife told me one day, uh, I think I was bragging about nearly having a million people vote for me. She said, yeah, and 700,000 didn't. <laughs> How does it feel to go to bed at night knowing 700,000 people liked somebody better than they liked you and weren't ashamed to say it? You know, they weren't ashamed, ashamed to say, I don't like this guy as much as I do this other one. <laughs> Therefore, I'm voting for him. Um, but that's just the nature of politics. And as soon as I get this Jefferson uh, biography of spirit and flesh in my hand, I'll, I mean, I'll slam through it. I'll, I'll assure you of that. I'll, um, I may even put the blue moon and Bud Light Lime on the side Saturday if I get it, um, and, and do some beach reading. Uh, it's got to be a big deal to cut out that Bud Light yeah, Lime, and wow. I, you know, on Saturdays. But if I get my you must book, really want to read that. And uh, I hate to say this, but it's it's heading by way online. Imagine that <laughs> it is ordering something online, and um, we'll probably spend multiple shows in the not too distant future talking about jefferson's moral universe the um the unification of man god and liberty 843-661-0937 is our number it is election day we'll do the best we can to try and walk through um, i'd love to hear this and i think this would make for a better show um what are you thinking i mean as you head to the poll the majority of our listeners are um voters some of their consistent voters i gotta believe um who did you vote for and why I mean, whomever's willing to say, I voted for candidate X, Y, or Z, um, why did you vote for candidate X, Y, or Z? I have hardened a little bit, and i got to be gut-level honest with you here. Um, I tried my best to stay neutral, and and I felt neutrality was a, you know, we've got a national election. Um, I don't have any better friends in the congressional race than I have others. Uh, in fact, of all the candidates in the 7th Congressional District, Tom Ross is probably as, as good a friend as any of the others. I've got to know the others throughout the campaign. I've talked to Garrett a few times, talked to Barbara several times. Uh, I talked to Russell a good bit during the campaign. Um, Ken Richardson actually sent a text to me yesterday thanking us, not just me personally, but us for how gracious and kind and receptive he's be, we've been to allowing him, you know, our time, our allotted time for candidates. And um, he says, hey, however this thing turns out, I want to tell you I really appreciate and respect the way you've handled you know, the candidates of the campaign and um, make sure you pass that word along. So I've gotten to know all of these people, but Tom and I go back a bit, you know, um, to his time running for Horry County Council chairman simultaneously to me winning for running for lieutenant governor. So we're kind of um, out for the same thing at the same time. Um, but that Cheney comment irked me. I mean, the Cheney comment irked me in a, it's, it's unnecessarily insulting. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was just my take on it. You know, the vote I disagree with, but he's explained himself, and I don't care what your opinion is of that vote. He's got the right to cast that ballot as he sees fit, and he did that. And he didn't say, I think I made a mistake. I'm sorry I did what I shouldn't have done. He said, I stand by that vote, 
And and I think I, 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 I know there are political consequences to me casting that ballot, but I stand by my casting of that vote. And I respect that. I vehemently disagree. I passionately disagree with that vote, but I can respect it. I don't know what to make of the Cheney comments. Just unnecessarily insulting um, to me personally, and I can't speak to the listeners, may not have bothered you at all, but but you, you know the way the majority of Republicans today in America feel about Liz Cheney. And, and it's just, I don't, I don't know. I just, I, what, what, you know, is it, was it a bad moment? I think he said yesterday, he kind of backtracked on some of that by, you know, they were asking about Kevin McCarthy and I think McCarthy's a bit inconsistent. Okay. Um, welcome to politics. People say things at times they don't really mean and, uh, and do things they didn't say that, or they said they weren't going to do. I mean, that's just kind of the nature of politics, but it'll, it'll be very interesting to me. I predict it. I'll predict again. I think Fry's somewhere in the low 40s. I think Rice is somewhere in the mid to upper 20s. And I think we'll have a runoff two weeks from today to decide the Republican nominee in the 7th Congressional District. That's my take on this. Now, Arthur will vehemently disagree. Some of our Arthur supporters say, no, you're wrong there. I could be wrong. I think 15% is her high water mark. I mean, I think she comes in third, and I think she acquits herself really and truly amazingly well from where she started to where she ended up, um, I still think she's probably closer to 10, but on her best day, I think she gets somewhere in the 13, 14, 15. Um, we shall see. That's why we have campaigns, why we have elections, and why we have radio shows that allow for conversations for people to um, just kind of express themselves however they see fit. Let's take a break. We'll be back. Got a call. 843-661-0937. What are you thinking on election day? Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Here's Lynn in Hartsville. Good morning, Lynn. Good morning. I, I was just, uh, I'd like to ask Ken to talk about seeing how he started out being on the business end, you know, working for his dad and stuff. And uh, business people versus lawyers. I mean, we've been sending lawyers, which should be in a courtroom, to me, uh, to Washington for years and years and years, you know? And it just seems like we're getting worse and worse and worse. And it just looks like we'd be better off. I would think the federal government is a, a big business. And I just can't understand why we keep sending all these uh, lawyers up to Washington to, to do the job of business people. See, you know, and, and like I say, Ken's been on both ends. He, he started out working for his dad, building these truck beds. And then, you know, he moved over into government. So, I would I would assume he, he he would have a good look at it. And that that's what I'm interested in. Thank you, Lynn. Appreciate that. I mean I think I can give a good perspective. In my private sector life, in the family business, it was all about accomplishment. It was all about fixing things. It was all about getting to a certain point of the day or the or the week or the month, the quarter or the or the year. And there were as I and I, I'm famous for saying this and I'm not famous for anything, but I say this a lot. There were there were metrics and measures that we had to be held accountable to. Um, as a business owner or a business person, your success or failure is predicated upon 
did we get that fixed or not? Did, did, we, did we build enough? Did we build a good enough truck bed to have a spot in the marketplace? And and with all due respect to lawyers, lawyers make more money when things become more complicated and conflicting. Uh, in other words, if business guys can can fix things and can work their uh, you know resolve their differences between themselves, we don't need lawyers. I mean, we we live in a world of conflict. We live in a world of um. Uh, in other words, Rev. Rev heard me say something, and he thinks that, and that's where he set his expectation. Uh, I didn't say that, and, and now we got to hire a lawyer. We got a dispute between Rev and I. And we got to hire a lawyer, and Rev's mad with me, and I'm mad with Rev. And the next thing you know, the lawyer, um, the longer it drags out, the more complicated it becomes, uh, the more money he makes. More billable hours. Sure, and, and I just think government. I've all used a ten to one rule. Uh, let's let's select ten business people and one lawyer. I mean, I think lawyers serve a legitimate purpose, and I've got many, many uh, friends of mine who are who are lawyers and attorneys. I'm thinking about two of the best friends in my life, or both attorneys. Uh, we joke around with this. In fact, we'll have text threads amongst one another, and um, and and one will jo- I mean, jokingly say, "Here's where all the lawyers get paid." I mean, it's kind of a it's it's not even inside baseball any longer. But but I've always felt that you know the businessman or woman, I mean, they've got to have things running along there's got to be some uh, there's a there's a measure of success and failure and in um in lawsuits in disputes in litigation um the longer it takes and the more complicated it becomes the more the lawyers make billable hours and you know the insurance company set aside this much for this case i don't know how many lawsuits i've been in where you know about when you're going to resolve the lawsuit when the insurance companies run out of settlement money you know, the, uh, the insurance company set aside $50,000 to pay lawyers in case this issue uh, ever goes to court or some sort of dispute. Um, you're not going to settle this dispute until the, the lawyers get all the money out of the insurance companies they possibly can. Now, the insurance companies will argue that the, or excuse me, the lawyers will argue, well, the insurance, you have to do this because the insurance companies won't settle. You know, they won't pay. They'll, they'll collect your premium. Uh, the business person has to get things done. That there is no blue ribbon committee. There is no subcommittee. There is no um, you know dispute resolution staff or committee. And um, and I do believe this, Lynn. I believe it with all my heart. Um, we need fewer lawyers and more business people in government. Um, business is excuse me. Government is the biggest business on the planet. I'll accept, and I've always accepted. I don't like it, but I'll accept that you can't run government exactly like a business. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. My brother and I, after my father passed away, let's go before my dad passed away, the three of us could go into his office and fundamentally change the direction of that business without checking with anybody. I mean, we could do it in a nanosecond, and we succeeded or failed based upon the direction of which we chose to go. I'll accept that government has to be a little more cumbersome than that. There's a lot more people that that have a right to articulate their points of view in government. But, but when you get to lawyering, and I mean this with all due respect, lawyers get paid to complicate things and make them even more conflicting one with another. Disputes can't be settled easily because lawyers don't get paid. I think that's their training. That's their, that's their aptitude. That's, their, that's, by and large, their skill set that they question everybody. I had a lawyer tell me um, one day that, He's tired of lawyering. I said, why? He said, because everything in my world is confrontational. Everything in my, I'm not passing out lottery tickets. You know, this person's mad at that person. 
And, and you know, they've got to figure out a way to get paid. And and getting paid on dragging the, the lawsuit out or making it take a, a lot longer is, is something that's kind of the nature of, of that business. But, yeah, Lynn, I believe, I mean, if I were king of the world, I'm not. But if I were, I would pass a law that says for every one lawyer we elect, we got to elect 10, uh, maybe eight. Eight business people to everyone, <laughs> because once again, the businessman or woman have a, a metric and measure of which they're held accountable to. They have no choice but to get things done, to accomplish what it is they said they were going to accomplish. You know, that there's a there's kind of a, a problem in our economy today. I don't want to go too far down this road, but the, 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 the economic imbalance in our economy today is, um, and I talk a little bit about, what are you contributing and what are you extracting from our nation's GDP? Uh, what what do lawyers genuinely? I mean, we're gonna have disputes, disagreements. You got to settle those in some way, shape, or form. We got a judicial um, system. Uh, we got branches of government, the co-equal branches of government. What is one? Judicial. So so we've always understood that lawsuits and litigation disputes are going to be a part of who we are. But but I think it's too heavily weighted to to the we we are a we litigate in America more than any other nation on earth. So if you're a lawyer and you're in politics and there's a bill that can be passed or not be passed and it allows for a more amicable dispute or a more complicated dispute, you're a lawyer now. Think about this. So are you going to vote for a bill that allows Dave Baker and I to settle our dispute without a lawyer? Or are you going to vote for one? I mean, it's a little bit self-preservation, right? I mean, of course it is. So so if you're a lawyer and disputes are based on a, uh, a misinterpretation or breaking of the law, why would you want fewer laws? See, I'm one that believes we got, I don't know, thousands too many laws. We got too many governments. We got too many layers of government. But all of that complicates things. Who wins when things get complicated? The lawyers. lawyers. And what are they really contributing to the country's GDP? That there are so many businesses and industries and sectors of our economy that you kind of look around and say, wow, I mean, they're making a lot of money. What are they contributing uh, in a positive way? To the GDP. I'm not saying we don't need lawyers. Of course we need lawyers. We got contract disputes. We got uh, we got murder trials. We got a lot of things that yeah, lawyer is a is an important profession in America. I just think politics has become too heavily weighted with lawyers because lawyers get paid when people disagree on law. So why would lawyers want to simplify the legal codes? They wouldn't. Uh, it's it's self-preservation 101. Let's go to the phone. Yeah, but I was going to say we had a guy, a businessman, elected to the highest office in the land, and I think he handled the affairs, the business affairs of our country, pretty darn good. Well, I'll give you an example. I got a buddy of mine who's a um, he's a vice president of a big bank. He told me, I didn't vote for Trump. I mean, it, this is him. He's not a real liberal guy, but he just didn't like Trump. He thought Trump was just a little bit too outlandish. He said, I didn't vote for Trump. A year into him being a vice president of the bank, he said, Ken, I'm going to tell you what he did. He said, every regulator that came to see me before Trump got there was a lawyer. And you had to be breaking some sort of law. I mean, you know, a 10-minute um, a meeting turned into a two-hour meeting. A, a one-page questionnaire turned into a 27-page questionnaire. He said when Trump got there, he put business people in charge of banking regulation. He put people who have actually um, loaned money. And, and collected money. And you know what I mean? He put people who had an understanding of the banking sector. And he can't speak to construction or manufacturing or anything else. He's a banker. But he said it was living proof to me. Once again, when Obama was president, 
the regulators were a bunch of lawyers. And the one-page document became 27 pages. The 10-minute meeting became an hour-and-a-half meeting. When Trump got there, he replaced all the lawyers with a bunch of bankers. And he said, I'm telling you, banking was so much more understandable, so much less conflicting and complicating. But, but once again, um, there's money to be made. Follow the money, guys. Not some, not most, but rather all of the time. Let's go to the phone. Bill in Georgetown. Hi, Bill. Good morning, gentlemen. I would love to debate the, the attorney uh, involvement in politics. Most attorneys are businessmen, I will say that. But I think you need to probably select the litig- litigators more than anything are the ones that are. What, what are lawyers in the business of, Bill? Pardon me? What are lawyers in the business? You said most lawyers are business people. What are lawyers in the business of? They're in the business of making money, just like every businessman. Yeah. So. Okay. They, they settle disputes, right? I mean, you would agree to that. They 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 generate contracts. They validate or invalidate contracts. They, you know, you're mad with me. I'm mad with you. I mean, I, I understand that, but I've always, I've always believed that the the system in America today, the political slash legal system in America today, is far too complicated. And the reason it's complicated is because lawyers have a lot more work when things become a lot more complicated. I, I wouldn't wholly disagree with that. I, I think you, I think it's a little more to it, but I, I wasn't the reason why I called in. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I, I really called in just to tell you why I voted and when I voted. I voted the second day of early voting, and I went out just for the purpose of voting against Tom. And I know Tom. I know Russell. I've, I've met Ken Richardson, um, and it's not so much of the vote that Tom took against Trump. It's it's a pattern of Republican politicians who go out there. They say they represent the will of their people, and then they go and do things that like what Tom did that go against the will of their people. So I, I happen to think Tom is an excellent congressman and probably would do a better job than all the rest of them, and he wouldn't even have a primary opponent if he had not made that one vote. But it's just uh, for people like Liz Cheney, I think there's a special place of political hell for them. And for Tom to go down that road, I think it was just something you couldn't come back from. I don't, you know, I'm not overly impressed with Russell. And I think Ken Richardson's commercials are probably some of the worst political commercials I've ever heard. But beyond that, um, I cast my vote the second day of early voting just for that reason. And, you know, I don't, it's not personal against Tom. I like him as a person, but that one vote was just too much to overcome. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate that. That is about where I stand. I mean, I've tried to argue that point, um, and I'd love to debate Bill on the on the lawyer because it looks like I'm beating up on lawyers. It's easy for business guys to beat up on lawyers. I mean, it really is. That's the the proverbial company line, so to speak. Uh, I'm thinking about two guys now that I don't know if they're listening this early in the morning, but if they are, I'll get a text. I mean, my phone is turned upside down. When I turn my phone back up, it'll be two lawyer friends of mine. Um, how dare you? And we we have this conversation a lot. And I think it's a warranted conversation. Now, now I, I'm going. I'm going level with you. I see the world as business. You know, I mean, uh, lawyers have always complicated and cost me money, so, so I have a natural knee-jerk reaction to that. But Bill's exactly right. There's a there's a very legitimate conversation to be had about the roles uh, or the role of lawyers in politics. Um, but we need lawyers. I mean, we need good lawyers. We need good, honest, hardworking, um, contributing to the country lawyers. Uh, we need disputes settled. We don't need, you know, the wild, wild west duels in the street. Rev's mad with me. I'm mad with Rev. As I've gotten older, I mean, in my younger days, I got mad 
about, you know, litigation. I got real, I don't get angry about it any longer. In fact, I believe that any construction project north of $5 million, go and hire your lawyer because <laughs> there's going to be some contract dispute at the end of it. And you've got your lawyer and we got our lawyer and we're arguing about this or arguing about that. And then you shake hands, drink a beer and say, okay, see you down the road if we do another project. So I'm not, I mean, it sounds like, and, and I guess it's real easy for a business guy to kind of go down the road of, you know, lawyers are costing us money and lawyers are, you know, the son of a gun's doing all this and creating all this unnecessary work and layers of complication and regulation within uh, the private sector. But I want to go back to what Bill said about Tom Rice, because I think there are a lot of people that feel that way. And and I want to know that why do you feel that way? Is it a loyalty to Trump, which some of it is? Um, is it a disrespect to the constituency? I think Bill kind of, I mean, I don't know that Bill said, you know, impeaching Trump was just a bridge too far because Trump's my guy. And, you know, we need to give him a fair sending off, so to speak. Sound to me like Bill was saying, Tom says he voted his consciousness, but you're not there to vote your consciousness. You're very, you're there to vote the, the interest of your constituency. Uh, I guess there's a balance there. And it's hard to get to exactly the right spot. But Bill um, explained the way he feels, and that's very similar to how I feel. Take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Election day is upon us, and I got to believe candidates are glad it's here, ready for this journey. <laughs> I can't imagine to conclude uh, about ten minutes before the polls open, and throughout Mister Pundit here throughout the campaign, and this has actually been, I mean, a year and a half. We've really been talking about this ever since that uh, Congressman Rice took that vote. But you've been really good about giving us ranges of uh, where you think. Each one of the candidates are going to end up in the final tally, you know, between this number percent and between this number percent. Mm-hmm. How about narrow that down a little for us? I mean, I want to hear some. So some zero precise, to 100 is going to be a little more precise. A little more precise than that because we, we are here. Polls open in nine minutes. Okay, I made now. a note to myself this morning. You ready? Mm-hmm. I got Fry at 45. I got Ross at 29. I got Arthur at 12. I mean, I made a note to myself this morning, and okay. I'll just, we'll see how that stacks up when the vote comes in. Um that, that, that's my number. Fry right. 45, 45, Rice 29, Arthur 12. Let's go to the phone. And that would still end up like you had earlier predicted. I mean, the Fry, with a, a the Fry campaign Fry believes that the Cheney comment bumped them up closer and closer to 50. I just think it's an unbelievable reach to get to 50% plus one vote. I just don't see that happening. Uh, there's some out there who say, you know, Rice can get in the 30s. I got him at, okay, I got, I got Fry at 45. I got Rice at 29. I've got Arthur at 12. That's where I have it. We'll find out we'll tomorrow whether I know what I'm talking about or not. Let's go to the phone. Charles in Lamar. Hey, Charles. Hey, good morning. You had a call earlier about uh, we keep sending lawyers to Washington. Um, I don't believe we have but four lawyers in our congressional delegation, and the other five are real estate developers, consultants, uh, retired educator, things like that. So uh, it's not – we've and an insurance agent uh, up there. We've backed off from, from all the lawyers. There's still lots and lots of lawyers in Columbia, but not as many representing South Carolina in Washington. And I have one question, and, and maybe you can put this out there as a poll. Who is whining the loudest? Renzi and her ad – or Tom, when he says, I delivered for you in his ad. Hope y'all have a great day. <laughs> Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. <laughs> we have, I mean, when I look around the Senate chamber and in, uh, in, in South Carolina, there there's still a good bit of lawyers there, but Charles is right. At the national level, 
I mean, American politics is still dominated by lawyers. In some of the real red states, that there's an anti-lawyer sentiment. I don't think people dislike lawyers. I think there are a lot of people who believe lawyers add or add layers of expense and complication, and that's what's wrong with government. There's too expensive and too complicated, so let's kind of remove that layer and and see where we end up. But, but you know, South Carolina, I'll, I'll give you a real quick story, and then we'll go to the phone. Well, let's go to the call, and I'll come back and tell the story. I want to be respectful of this our listener's time, and we've got a hard break in a couple of minutes. Joe in Hartsville. Hey, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. The problem with businessmen going to Washington is it's totally different than everything they've experienced before. Washington government is a money-spending organization. It's not a a money-making organization. I mean, they get all their money from us, and then they spend it. And my question always is, who can spend my money better, me or the government? And you've been asking the question the last couple of weeks, what is America first? America first is America's great because America's good. It's like being on an airplane and something happens and the little mask come down and you put it on your child first. That's America first because without America first, the world cannot succeed. We are the greatest charity giving people in the world who's going to come to our defense if we fall yeah i don't see anyone that can do that joe we got a hard break you know, top of the hour thank you for right. your call thank you for your comments back in just a minute Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number our number two we've got with us or not with us right now but in a few moments we'll have david carlucci he was a um one of the youngest senators elected to the new york state senate in 2010 at just 29 years old we're going to talk about some of the midterms south carolina nevada and maine are the three we don't care about south dakota and maine excuse me nevada and maine but we care a lot about what happens in south carolina and i uh, have a, a race kind of a national interest is um the seventh congressional district that we talked a good bit about this morning i noticed in your predictions you gave a few minutes ago that your numbers are a little bit different than the trafalgar poll from a few weeks ago that the three uh top candidates uh, that you had made the prediction on have a higher percentage than Trafalgar had those three. You got to take into account the seven to 10 undecideds. I mean, there's not, nobody okay. named undecideds on the ballot. So the undecideds will break some late break. I mean, some will go to the ballot box today, not knowing for sure who it is they're going to vote for. So the 42.5 that Russell or 42.2 that Trafalgar had Russell, um, I got him getting about three. And I think that's an inflated number. I mean, I think Robert's poll, the Trafalgar poll had seven percent undecided i think more of those break with uh russell's way because there's a uh hardly any of the undecided is going to break tom rice's way i mean they just aren't the um those who want to punish the guy who voted to impeach donald trump are still making their minds up um the fry campaign believes there's an outside chance they get to 50 percent. i don't i mean they, they they genuinely believe that and i would imagine they've run some models that show um a higher percentage of undecideds breaking their way, and some of the Arthur votes, some of the Richardson votes, some of the Barton votes, some of the McBride votes, some of the uh, Spencer Mars votes saying, why are we going to take a chance? I mean, it appears to be inevitable that we're going to have, you know, Russell Fry and Tom Rice in a runoff. Why even take that chance? Let's take that off the table. 
let's not even risk allowing some of the crossovers to influence or distort the um, the vote two weeks from today. And um, as much as I want to vote for Ken Richardson or Barbara Arthur or Garrett Barton, um, I'm voting against a guy that voted to impeach Donald Trump. And that's what this race has always been about. Um, uh, you know, I've said it and I'll say it again. I, I still like Tom Ross. I just think he committed political suicide when he chose to do what it is he did. Now, now you could argue politically, and um, and I think the, the strongest argument to make, Ref, from my perspective is, you know, what is the obligation you have to your consciousness and balance with your constituency? I don't think it's your vote. You know, I, I used to hear politicians say, that's my vote. No, that's not your vote. That, that There's a balance between... You're a representative. You better believe it. It's a representative republic. You're obligated. You have a responsibility, not to yourself, but to the people who sent you there to do that job and being in touch and understanding and and in concert with those people is, is to me, uh, important. So, you know, when, when a congressman or woman or a U.S. senator or a House member or a county council member, for that matter, says, you know, I voted in my consciousness and that's my vote and I'm going to be held, held responsible for that vote. Now, now Congressman Ross decided... This was the hill he's willing to die on. We'll find out if he dies or not. Um, politically, I'm not talking about, um, you know, literally, but but I, I've just always felt that you got to be careful believing that's your seat. That's the people's seat. They've allowed you, through the graciousness of them casting more ballots in your favor than against, for you to sit there and do that job. And and I think the the ballots that, um, that you have to have and understanding um, – I see the world this way, and I think Trump's responsible for what happened on January 6th, but I understand my constituency, and I understand that they still very much support um, Donald Trump. That's the big problem with the Trump phenomenon. That's the big problem with America first. Um, the dirty secret's this, and some of you know this, and some are a little bit unaware. Here's the dirty secret. The Trump voter has not been intimately engaged in American politics for an extended period of time. And the uh, the blue bloods of American politics believe that you discount that. You don't have a right to tell a political party which direction it goes or not. Um, you know, I mean, think about Thigpen. I mean, you know, Dr. Thigpen has committed a lot of his energy, effort, and life to building a Republican Party. Um, and, and these Johnny-come-latelys show up at the precinct you know, and want to just fundamentally change the direction of a political party. Um, Think Penn resists that. A lot of the traditional Republicans and what I call legacy Republicans resist that. But it's where the party is. It's where the party's headed. I'm not saying you got to embrace it, but you've got to accept it. And a lot of the um, a lot of the upper crust of the Republican Party just don't like the fact that they're being held accountable, being called to the carpet by these people they consider to be politically unwashed and uncouth and just not quite qualified um, to suggest as strongly as they have, this is the way this party is going. Let's go to the phone. Tommy in Sumter listening to WTXY. Hi, Tommy. Good morning. I was trying to drive out to listen there. I had to pull over mm-hmm. for a lot of the signal. You're on the phone, say- sir. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. We're yes, here just fine. Yeah, I just had to say something about the last call of Joe or Jim, whatever it was. He said something so simple, I guess, but it struck me as profound when he said America is great because America is good. He just gave me, like, goosebumps. And, I mean, that's right. He said, who's going to be there to pick us up? Who's going to – and it's not going to be anybody. 
it just that just struck me as so profound when he said that. Thank you, Tommy. You appreciate it. Well, I mean, you know, yeah. America is, I mean, the, the, the greatness of America is not in the halls of Congress. The, the temperament of America is not reflected by, by the way we govern ourselves. It, it's who we are. I mean, that, that is the greatness. I mean, I'll go back to Jefferson. And uh, we talked earlier today about a um, uh, Thomas Kidd, uh, an author and writer and renowned um, Christian theological researcher. Um Jefferson believed that. I mean, Jefferson believed that the the great, the only greatness in America is in its people. I mean, it's not in the halls of Congress. It's not in City Hall. It's not in a subcommittee deciding how many billions of dollars we're going to spend on mental health or or whether or not we're going to pass a, an amendment to the Second Amendment. I mean, it's it's not that. The beauty and greatness and 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 future of America is in its people. Is in it's it's in its in its citizenry. Who are we? What do we stand for? What do we believe in? What are our priorities? I think the notion and idea of America is as great as it's ever been. I mean, I think America's in decline. I don't think America's in decline because we've changed the Constitution, because we've not. I think America's in decline because we have become a people who accept things from our government that we should have never accepted before. I mean, we've allowed our You didn't vote. I didn't vote. We've allowed our government. What we, in some indirect way, have basically said, it's okay to borrow a trillion dollars every year we don't have. It's okay to allow government money to go to Planned Parenthood to, to abort and kill babies who aren't, haven't been born yet. I mean, you know, no, nobody stole, nobody stole um, the power in Washington. We allowed that to happen. So I've always maintained and will to my last breath. As Jefferson, I mean, the greatness of this country is not in the halls of Congress. It's in the very people who send those we choose to represent republican democrat independent northeast south west it doesn't you know whatever i mean we are a very i like to say this you want to be country for a second we're a big ass complicated country <laughs> i mean we really are i mean we, we welcome and embrace the complexities of diversity and and along with that comes a certain responsibility and i think we've shirked our responsibility as voters for allowing the government to get away with certain things we've allowed the government to get away with. Nobody, as far as I know, has ever pulled a gun at the door of the Capitol and said, I want to be a congressman. I want to be a senator. I want to be a, a governor. I want to be a lieutenant governor. You know, I mean, we elect these people. We just fail to hold those people accountable because we become apathetic and complacent and disenchanted with politics. We're waiting on somebody else to do something about it. I think that's why we probably like Trump as much as we did as Republicans. We didn't feel he'd sit idly by and just let things happen. Um, and he did about as much harm to himself as he did, you know, to advance his agenda or his momentum or his, uh, you know, the America first agenda. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I believe that, you know, very often we look at the government and say, well, the problem with the country is the government. Well, the government's simply a reflection of who we are, what we become as a general population. And what a great segue into the polls are open. Yeah, the polls this, are open in South Carolina, 7th Congressional District. Make is a something primary choice today. We're paying very, very close attention to. Got with us, a, I was a guest, one of the youngest senators elected to the New York State Senate in 2010 at 29 years old. Wow. That's a um, that's but a pup, as we like to say. Um, David Carlucci. David, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. So you were very, very young to be interested in politics. What motivated? What 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 about politics interested you at such an early age? Oh, I was very naive. I was very naive. And then I and then I learned quickly what was going on. No, I always thought, hey, you know, this is you gotta you can't complain. You gotta have a seat at the table. 
and work towards getting results and getting things done that you care about. So that's what's always driven me. Um, but yeah, you have some exciting elections today in South Carolina and around the country, but particularly here in South Carolina today. Let's talk a little bit about what you expect to happen in these midterms. Um, these are selection processes. The Democrats are selecting their nominee. The Republicans are selecting their nominee. From your, from your perspective, what, what, what are the big picture issues we should be paying close attention to? Well, I think particularly in South Carolina and Nevada today, um, you mentioned today the 7th uh, Congressional District in South Carolina. So you have um, two incumbents in South Carolina that we're paying very close attention to, of course, Representative Tom Rice, who, as you all know very well, has really uh, stood up against Donald Trump, and he is feeling the wrath of Donald Trump and his supporters. So whereas some of the other candidates, like uh, Nancy Mace, um, has also bucked Trump a little bit, she started to try to mend fences. Uh, we see that Representative Tom Price has really doubled down. And what will be interesting is to see how the voters react to that. Uh, Tom Price, we know his record. He's been a conservative for many years. Um, but these elections really aren't about the record. They're about what, how strongly you feel about the bona fides of that candidate. Um, Tom Rice has been called a rhino by President, uh, former President Donald Trump um, and has really felt that wrath. So that's something we're going to see to see how important is the Donald Trump endorsement in these Republican primaries and ultimately how it bodes for them in the general election as well. So that's something we'll see. Um, the Tom Rice uh, race, I think everybody is watching very closely to see how uh, State Representative Russell Fry does. We know there's multiple candidates in the race, but Russell Fry has uh, gotten the endorsement of Donald Trump and has been really backing um, his candidate. So we'll see how that turns out. And then for Nancy Mace, her reelection, she was one of the first people to really uh, call and disparage Donald Trump for his actions on the January 6th. Uh, insurrection of the Capitol. Uh, she says that she was really upset on that day. Um, but since the days after January 6th, she's really start, really backpedaled and tried to mend fences with Donald Trump, even though Donald Trump um, was uh, really upset, obviously, and has endorsed um, Representative Arrington, a state representative, and will also be watching that race very closely as well. David, as a member of the Democrat Party, are you uh, in favor or worried more about Trump being the central figure in the Republican Party in the midterms and probably uh, moving forward? As, 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 a, as a Democrat who wants to beat Republicans and be in charge, do you like the fact that Trump is such a central figure or would you rather him not be so important, impactful in these elections? It's a great question. As from the Democratic side, as a Democratic strategist, we look at it both ways um, in many of these suburban districts around the country where having Donald Trump essentially on the ticket, if you will, if he's really involved in the conversation, that could bode well to get Democrats out to vote. Um, but at the same time, what it's also doing for these Republican candidates that are endorsed by Donald Trump, it's also engaging the base of the Republican Party and encouraging them to vote. So we've seen cases 
where some Democrats have actually tried to build up uh, some of their Republican opponents, um, feeling that they were the most extreme, uh, the most uh, tied to Donald Trump. And what happened in some of these early primaries, we've seen those candidates win the Republican primary and build up a tremendous amount of steam that it's almost troublesome in the general election. So that's going to be a mixed bag and one that we're going to be watching carefully. So I think it depends on the district, but one that uh, Democrats have to be very careful about what they wish for. Interesting. Um, well, you know, as, as someone who has run statewide in South Carolina, I'll give you a little local knowledge. Russell Fry yeah, will win the 7th Congressional District. He'll probably get in the mid-40s today. Rice may get to 30. I don't think he will. And Nancy Mace will win, not overwhelmingly, but I think she wins by six or seven points in Charleston. And it's as simple as this, David. Trump's force and factor in the Horry County District is just much more profound than it is in Charleston, which has a little more eclectic and cosmopolitan population. The, the coast of South Carolina has changed enormously. I mean, it's not native South Carolina. It's not the belt or the buckle of the Bible oh, belt. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, as someone who has a, a pretty good understanding of, of politics in South Carolina, I think uh, Russell Fry is on his way to be a U.S. congressman because Trump is so popular. I think Nancy Mace holds on and, and beats a Trump-endorsed Katie Arrington in Charleston by a little bit wider margin than even some of us expect, probably seven, maybe even eight percentage points. Wow, that's, that's really, really interesting. I appreciate that perspective. All right, David, thank you for your time. Keep them, uh, keep them straight in New York, and we'll try to do the same down south. Thank you. Take care. Thank you, sir. Yeah, a uh, Democrat from New York is always an interesting and welcome guest on this feeble yeah. attempt at Radio Brilliance. Um, it's just kind of interesting when I hear these guys, I mean, they're, they're pros, and they're offered us as Fox News contributors because they're pros, but you don't need to be lectured to uh, by someone in New York City about the 7th and 1st Congressional <laughs> District. We have a pretty good understanding of well, that around well, here. Your, your clue is when he refers to January 6th as an insurrection. Sure. I mean, it, as it, a it, matter of fact, <laughs> that's what he says. Well, that's that's the talking point. Yeah. Uh, and ours is a riot but we, uh, gone rowdy. We appreciate his, sure. uh, his input. And, and any time we're offered a Democrat, uh, Mike and, and formerly Cato will tell you, I always embrace the opportunity to get somebody with a different perspective. Um, 843-661-0937. Someone's on the phone. Uh, let's do this. I don't want to get too far behind. Let's take our break. And callers, hang with us, please. Um, you guys are so important to this show, and you become so participatory here recently, and, uh, and, and we really enjoy it. And the owners like a lot of phone calls, and I like this job. Take a break. <laughs> Back There's in just that. a couple of minutes. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Callers are on the phone. Let's go there. Breeze. Good morning. You're on. You know, kid, I can't figure that rice boy out. It's sort of like sometimes I've gone to Republican um, events, and I look through the crowd and some of the people. I said, you know, I said, here I am, middle, middle, upper middle class. And I look at some of these folks that are worth gazillions of dollars. You know, like you and some of those other guys, and I sit there and say. And I just, what do I have in common with that guy? And I think Tom Rice, if you had to write a speech how not to get re-elect, you know, reelected, or how, what to do to sabotage, what he did yesterday basically called everyone that supported Trump and everyone that went to Washington basically a traitor and an insurrectionist and someone that hated this country and hated the Constitution. I mean, the people that went up to Washington – were heroes. They loved the Constitution. And I know you, you say that, well, I wish it wouldn't have happened. Well, the optics may not have been good. 
here's what I would have said. I would have said, listen, the majority of these people that went to Washington were patriots. They didn't like the um, – they felt like the election uh, was was rigged. They didn't feel that it was an honest election. And that's their constitutional right. Now, I will say this. The optics were not what good. And this is what Rice should have said. And I will also – but the thing that bothered me is I felt Trump should have done more to stop it. Now, in my opinion, to Trump, it wasn't Trump. They should have done more to stop it. It was the, um, it was Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats. They were in charge of security there. And you see all the videos of the world, which they won't show you, of the police actually letting the people in. I, I, I just think Rice, he is intentionally trying to lose the race, it appears to me. But I'll tell you another thing, and I told you this yesterday on a text. I said, I am said the people that are walking around, the biggest mistake that, we're, that, that we make as Republicans is we're sitting there thinking that there is a plan. You know, that there, that we are, there is a plan to fix all of this stuff going on. There is no plan. You're dreaming if you think there is a plan to fix the price of gas by producing more oil. You're dreaming if you think that they want to lower these prices and everything. Everything they're doing is going according to plan. Their plan was to break to break this democracy. Their plan was to destroy this democracy. And when some liberal says, well, what about inflation in these other countries? That was their plan also. There is a worldwide plan to destroy every democracy on earth and come up with their utopia, global, communist, whatever crap agenda they have. But it don't think for one second that the Democrats, I'll keep saying this, they're not stupid. Everything is going perfectly according to their plan. Now, my next question is, and I haven't figured this out yet, how do they intend to stay in power? That's what you need to figure out. What is their plan to stay in power? Because their plan is going perfect as far as their desire to, to break and destroy this democracy, this republic is what it is. But they call them democracies. That's what we got to figure out. They have to have a plan to stay in power. And that's what we got to figure out. Because everything else they're doing is going perfectly according to plan. None of this is an accident, sports fans. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. Breeze and I texted a little bit yesterday. Here's the, uh, and, and I'll try to be as, uh, ah, I'll try to be as clean as I can about this, but this gets a little bit colorful if you're not careful. The majority of my life, the Republican Party's been run um, by people who ah, live in country clubs and work white-collar jobs. I mean, that's just the nature of the party. The party's been the party of um, the wealthy, the affluent, the elite, and and then everybody else kind of got in line. There's a reason that guy's got a nicer suit. There's a reason he lives in a bigger house. There's a reason he's got a better job. He's smarter. He's um, you know, he's just he's more competent than I am. And and a lot of Republican voters kind of fell in line behind those opinion leaders, thought leaders, uh, who were I don't know disguising themselves as political operatives. But but the policies were made on the golf course, or on the beach, or at, at a cocktail party. And all of a sudden, these this rambunctious bunch consolidates and shows up. And they are the energy within the party. And talking about Rice having trouble. I think Tom Rice is one of those Republicans 
who has a hard time understanding this inertia, this energy. Um, and, and once again, I'm not going to try and pass judgment. Does he like it? Does he appreciate it? Does he? I, I just know that he doesn't understand it. I've got many friends in my world that think I'm crazy because I, you know, they'll say you're banking on this movement dominating American politics for the next 20 years. Yeah, there's no doubt in my mind. There, there's more of them than there are y'all is what I always tell my elite friends. And this goes back to the foot in each camp argument I always make about the way I live my life. I had a friend die over the weekend, and I put something on Facebook about this friend. Um, I had a bunch of pictures. The guy worked for my father. Uh, I don't remember my dad's business without this guy there. But this guy, as I put on Facebook, and I'll leave a couple of these words out, but it had to be said that way. Uh, This guy ate what he killed, cleaned what he caught, and fixed his own stuff when it broke down. He was the, uh, I don't remember seeing that guy in the last two years of his life that he didn't have a Trump hat on. I mean, I just don't. I don't remember seeing him. And I'd stop by my father's or my brother's business now because I sold my half to my brother. When I'd stop by there on the way to the beach to see them, I don't remember seeing him that he didn't have a Trump hat on. Now the elites at the country club find it a little bit appalling that that guy is so influential in American politics today. The working class American realized that the, the two political parties had no genuine interest in their in their plight or well-being. They just did. I mean, they'd sold their soul to China or some other f- sort of foreign trade deal or, or some sort of insiderism. And at some point in time, um, these people woke up and realized they were pawns in a game. And they were sitting where they were told to sit, standing where they were told to stand, doing what they were told to do, and they, damn it, had enough of it. And Trump comes along with a lot of bombast and uh, a little bit of street cred because he's the guy that made a lot of money and says what he thinks and means what he says. The The country club is full of people who find that appalling, disgusting, ir- I mean, just uh, reprehensible. How in the world could these people direct the fate and future of a political party? And you can either accept it, once again, not have to embrace it, but you could accept it or resist. And there are those within the Republican Party who still feel it's their privilege, it's their birthright to say where this party goes and what this party does. The Lincoln Project epitomizes that. Some of the Rice uh, passionate support to me epitomizes that. I've seen things on Facebook that I think hurt Tom Rice more than they help. I think it's intended to help Rice, but they say things like, um, it's just it's very, very unnecessarily insulting to people who go to work every day and believe they're not getting their fair shake at the American dream because somebody's getting more than their fair share. And that's where we are. And you can like it or you cannot like it, but there are a lot more of them than they are of you. I don't want to say us because I don't really know where I land. I mean, I've got, you know, I've always been conflicted here. I, I gave a speech to the GOP. And one of the guys that works for the GOP was there. And he said, repeat that line to me again. And I said, we have lived in a political party for most of my generation where nobody had ever gone to a bar with a dirt parking lot. And all of a sudden we have meetings and we have conventions and we have rallies and people show up who have been to bars with dirt parking lots. And we need to send some of our leaders to bars with dirt parking lots so we can relate to this political movement, to this political energy that is going to define the Republican Party for the next 20 or 25 years, the J.D. Vances of the world, the Ron DeSantis's of the world, the Rand Pauls of the world, the Josh Hawley's of the world. Hopefully, 
um, the Blake Masters of the world, they add this intellectual underpinning that complements very much so these good old boys and good old girls who are very much at home in a bar with a dirt parking lot. The elite establishment, the country club crowd, don't believe those people are entitled. They're not smart enough. They're not clean enough. They're not educated enough. Um, as mentioned said, you know, if the, if the common people want to be in charge, give it to them and give it to them good. I mean, there's kind of a similar thought pattern to the leadership of the Republican Party. I've accepted. I mean, I've actually embraced. I am proud that we have a Republican Party now, that people who have been to clubs with dirt parking lots, myself included, have a voice and, a, and, and an absolute avenue to leadership in this political movement that I think is going to change American politics for the next 25 or 30 years. Some of you find that disgusting. Some of you find that repulsive. There ain't enough of you to stop those who share this. Uh, I don't want to call it Trumpism, but it's this. Uh, and I don't want to call it MAGA. It's it's, you know, the, the we're, we're going to we're going to institute a, a level of government, a kind of government that reflects genuinely the interests of the American working family. That's what I want to be a part of. Let's go to the phone. Here's Jim in Florence. Good morning, Jim. Hey, hey. Good morning, guys. So, Ken, where do I go to sign up to send my uh, boys to Breeze's Boys Summer Camp? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think if we ever had an effort to make America great again, that'd probably be one of the best efforts we could do. But, uh, hey, Ken, to a uh, point and a question. Uh, one of the most interesting things I've noticed um, through this primary season is, is how we have in a Republican county council primary we have two republicans are arguing over who's going to do more to pay public employees more in, in reference to the deputies I, I completely agree we should pay more but man that indicates a real shift to me where we in the republican party where that's the discussion or part of the discussion i mean that hadn't been the only thing they've discussed um so i've, I've certainly found that interesting um now my question to you ken is in reference to Tom and the vote, did Tom lose us with the vote or did Tom lose us with the way he treated us after the vote? Because um, certainly for me, I, I felt um, that if he wouldn't have continued to ridicule us for disagreeing with them after the vote, he could have fared better. I think he could have still doubled down on it, but he just continued to, to, to ridicule us for it. I'd just like to get your opinion on that. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate that. I, yeah, I, <laughs> uh, there was a conversation Tom and I had immediately following the vote. I remember he came on the show well, the day after, a couple of days after the vote. And um, uh, I don't think Tom would mind me divulging this. I mean, he, he, he called me and said, uh, you know, I want to get on the show. Uh, I got some splaining to do, I think is what he said. And, and I assumed he was coming to try and not do a mea culpa, but try to rationalize, you know, the reason he voted the way he did. Um, it's not for me to suggest to a congressman what you need to tell my listeners. I mean, if the forum's there, the mic's there, the chair's there, it's always open to to a congressman, a senator, a governor, anybody who has something to say to the people worthy of listening to. Uh, and when Tom came in, and I'll never forget uh, the, the little bit of tension in the air uh, that morning, and he basically sat his watch down on the counter, and he went through the you know the six minutes, the seven minutes, the eight minutes, where's the president? And, and I knew he had trouble when he left here that day. I mean, I knew he had all sorts of trouble um, politically and in his future that day. Um, once again, I expected um, an explanation. I expected not a mea culpa. 
I mean, I, you know, I think that's unfair to say Tom owes you an apology. Tom did what he thought he needed to do. I respect that, but I predict he's going to pay quite the political price in relation to that. But, uh, but I'll never forget that day. And, and when he cast a ballot, I remember thinking to myself, did he mash the wrong button? I mean, surely. And then uh, when, he, when he called me and said, I want to come on the show, I made an assumption. It was wrong, but I made the assumption he was going to come on and respectfully explain um, why it is the controversy, the conflict, the confusion of the moment. And here's why I did what I did. And please understand, um, you know, that, that I, can, I, I can honestly see the other side of this argument. There was none of that. I mean, it was a doubling, tripling, quadrupling down. And when he walked through that door to my right, Rev's left, not Rev's right, um, I said, he's got big problems, big, big trouble. And here we are on election day 20, uh, 2022, midterm Republican primaries, and I've got him at about 29%. Now, now once again, polls have him at 32%. Polls have him at, at 25%. I think, he's, I think he could get to 30, and I think he could get to 30 because some of the constituent service, I'm talking about veterans and people they've helped, you know, with some of the uh, outposts throughout the district and, and, and trying to get veterans, you know, their help and trying to get some of these disabled and Social Security benefits and whatnot. Um, I know that to be true because they do a good job of constituency response when it comes to those sorts sorts of things. And and look, in, in all honesty, I wish elections weren't defined by one vote. I wish we had a very controversial and consequential conversation about what one candidate believes in contrast to what the other stands for and believes. But that's not where we are. And and once again, when he cast the vote, ah, wow, why did you do that? And then when he comes in and basically explains the vote the way he did, I just, my political instinct and gut, which is all I've got, I don't have any formal training at all in American politics, but my gut said, wow, okay, um, somebody will eventually decide to run. And then, the, you know, the Club for Growth got real involved in recruitment of candidates. Um, I can relate to that because I was one of the uh, people they reached out to to see if I had an interest in and going to Washington, which I didn't. Uh, I'm still interested in that ambassador to, to Pauly's Island, but it's not been um, it's not been made available yet. Uh, but but here we are today. Um, an incumbent congressman hardly ever loses. I mean, they just don't. They get reelected over and over and over and over again. And I think we're heading uh, to a runoff that probably ends up 60-40 ish. I mean, that, that's kind of where I've got it. You asked me to not give a range any longer, so I'll be a little more candid. I've got Russell at about 45. i got Tom at about 29. I've got Barbara Arthur at 12. I think we have a runoff in two weeks, and I think it's roughly 60-40 in a runoff, and I think it's all about the Trump impeachment vote. That's just the way I see it, and that shouldn't be surprising. I would argue that's the way most of you see that. Now, to, other, to Jim's other point, um, it, it is very interesting that Buddy Brandon and William Schofield ran as conservative Republicans, but we got to pay law enforcement more. We got to pay county employees more. You know, I, th- that's a fundamental debate. And J.D. Vance, I think, talks a little bit about this and his uh, kind of platform and uh, the nuances that he addresses when he says, you know, what are we going to do when we get in power? I think we can all agree law enforcement, public safety is a, a f- core function of government. I don't care how conservative you are. Um, I would probably rather see those two candidates. Where are we going to take the money from? Uh, you know, if we're going to pay count, if we, we got the counties are flush now, school districts are flush now because of COVID money. Uh, that's why they, you know, that's why they have the 
uh, more money than they've ever had. I think it's one of the ads I've heard by one of those candidates, maybe Buddy, maybe William, I don't know, but um, the county has more money than they've ever had. The reason is COVID. $8.3 billion made its way to, excuse me, $8.9 billion made its way to South Carolina. Six point three of the eight point nine billion is in the coffers of school districts, higher education, uh, county and city government, state government. Uh, Representative Lowe said last week, you know, got a billion bucks that they didn't count on. Some of that's economic growth and activity and the increase in the, in the tax collection, but a lot of that is kind of the rest and residue of COVID. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Let's go to the phone. A couple of callers are there. Here is Verd in Marlboro County this morning. Hey, Verd. Good morning. How y'all doing? Doing well. Heat's going to play a big factor today, looks like. Voting over here so far looks like kind of so. Uh, Ken, like you, I uh, was watching that vote that day in Washington, and I thought, sure, it was a mistake. I gave it a couple of seconds. It didn't change and waited, and within five minutes, I was on the phone to Columbia talking to them about it, and they said, yeah, we're looking at it, and Drew McKissick is actually on the phone to Washington, uh, said it's got to be a mistake. Well, it evidently wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a mistake that uh, he pushed the button he wanted to push. But, you know, you're talking about somebody, and I haven't talked to you about this, Kim. I haven't talked to really anybody about it, but uh, Tom Rice talked to me nearly every week uh, the whole 10 years he's been on the council from the time he first ever come into Marlboro County when we had over 100 people at the initial meeting. In 2020, he got over 83% of the vote in this district that I represent the people of Marlboro County on in, in the District 6. and so, But, you know, uh, within within four hours, uh, I had four people come by my house, and that night I had five phone calls and said, Bird, you know, you came by my house, you brought your sign, and you brought Tom Rice a sign, but said if you ever bring his sign again, don't bring one of yours either. So it took a drastic effect on somebody like me that, that for 10 years worked for him, and it, uh, it was just um, it, it just totally, totally just, floored me that people like us that have worked so hard for him and uh, and this is the first time i've talked about this but it it literally that vote uh, on that january 13th i have had not one person come to me and tell me that they would vote for him again and i've had hundreds and hundreds tell me said verda if you ever support him again i will not support you so you know people like me ken and i know you people that supported him and, and, I, and i'll go and say this now tom rice did a good job but you know he turned his back on the people that had put him there and in my district you know when you're talking about an 83 percent vote i don't know that he got a better vote anywhere in the seventh district in 83 percent of a of, of county council district like mine but anyway i think i can't agree with you i think the numbers are going to be pretty close to where you are today and uh, it's just, uh, that's my take on it. You know, I haven't said anything to anybody in well over a year about it, but it's, uh, today's election day. And I figure it's time now that, you know, people like me that really supported him, you know, he turned his back on us and, uh, and I just, I just had to get that off my chest. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate wow. that. Very heartfelt and sincere. And, uh, and I do respect people that went out and worked hard to help someone get elected. Um, and then you felt like you were let down. Um, but that's, that's kind of the nature of American politics. You know, there, there's a scene in the eyes of March about politics and there, there's one of these guys who's basically, um, he's selling data from inside one campaign to the other campaign. And then he tries and goes to get a job at another campaign. And, and one of the people I remember is, is clearly and vividly, cause I can relate to this. He says, um, you make a mistake like that. You don't get to play anymore. 
In other words, go find you another line of work. Because if you make a mistake like that, I mean, we all make mistakes. We all are held accountable to those mistakes. I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. One just happened to make the headlines. I mean, I'm, I've done much dumber things than that in my life. It just didn't make, you know, the front page of the paper, the headlines on the news. But um, I just think Tom Rice made an egregious mistake. Um, why he made that mistake, I don't have any idea. I mean, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I speculate. I, I plunder around to see where where this might lead. Um, I do know there's an element within the political party that just doesn't come to grips or can't come to grips with this is where the party is today. Um, and maybe, just maybe, um, you know, that's th- there was some cover offered to Tom. This would be very interesting to me, and I don't know the answer to this. Who did Tom counsel with before casting that ballot? Did he do it on an island? Did he did it spontaneous? Did he do it spontaneously? Or did he reach out to several supporters of his and try to, you know, what is the calculus? If I do this, where do we go from there? Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. we got Dr. Scott Coppin with us. I think Dr. Bolt is on vacation. Um, and do we pay him for a week off? <laughs> well, we'll give Coppin his check and let Coppin send it off on a <laughs> carrier pigeon to a boat unknown, a boat in parts unknown. There you go. Uh, let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Hello, Mike. Hey, good morning. I'm, I've heard uh, Breeze preach it, and I've heard uh, Ken teach it, so I, I don't know if there's too much more I can say. Sure there but, is. Sure there is. Uh, uh, but I I tell you, uh, Rice, uh, he didn't do himself any good uh, when he was talking yesterday. When he said uh, what he thought about Liz Cheney, I said, goodness gracious, if you don't have any better judgment than that, I'm not sure I'd want you up there anyway. And he's uh, he doesn't understand integrity. He doesn't understand integrity. And he could have, I, I would have understood it if he declined to vote, maybe. But uh, to vote like that against a man that had, uh, as in my, in my lifetime, has delivered more of what he said he would do than just about any, by anyone except Biden. And Biden, but Biden uh, delivered pain and loss. But I'm 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 terribly afraid of what's going to happen. You talked about this restrictor plate they're going to put on the uh, economy in September and uh, double the uh, rate of restricting the uh, of money flow into the economy. And I think. Uh, that, that's going to generate an emergency, Ken. I don't, I don't know what it, what it is, but I think that might be uh, the source of our October surprise there when they they add that onto all the woes, and it looks like we're headed toward not six dollar diesel, but seven, eight, ten dollar diesel. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. A lot of points to cover there. Um, quantitative tightening is what he's talking about. We've lived in a world of quantitative easing, where the Fed basically. Um, I mean, they, they purchase securities, they purchase government debt, and they're beginning to kind of unwind. They're going to, to, to try and um, rebalance their, their balance sheet. And they're going to, I think, to begin with, it's $47.5 billion a month. And September kicks up to about $90 billion a month. And the way you drag to take liquidity out of the economy, when you purchase securities or government debt, and that government debt matures, you just don't you don't reinvest it. That money comes out of the economy. That's called quantitative tightening. And quantitative tightening and raising interest rates, I think there's some um, some scuttlebutt now about the Fed raising at a 0.75 mark. That's probably the reason the market sold off as 
dramatically and drastically as it did yesterday. And I mean, I just look at history and, and when you look at history and you see uh, where it looks like we're headed, recessions are inevitable. I mean, when you start raising interest rates and, and, and taking liquidity out of the economy, you, you're doing it to basically adjust for inflation, but it's going to have massive consequence in the economy. And I just, I think we're in a, in a recession as we speak. I mean, I really believe that. Um, I, I got friends in certain sectors of the economy that are a little bit ahead of the curve normally. Um, the truck body manufacturing business would be one. Um, that that sector of the economy seems to go in to a recession quicker than than other sectors. It recovers quicker than other and sectors. And we've had a quarter of negative growth, right? Sure, but, but there's no precedent here, Rev. There's, here's the concern I've got. I mean, we put about $6 trillion of liquidity into the economy in the name of COVID response. And now we're going, I mean, we, we've, we basically jacked up the economy. Everybody, and this is a weird way to say it, but it's, stick with me for a second. We allow the economy collectively and in, in the aggregate to become speculative. Uh, a house is 300000 but everybody's got money, so let's speculate it's 350000 And, I mean, you just, that, that's, that's fairy tales. I mean, that's la-la land. That's not reality. It's completely disconnected from reality. But there's no example in human history of, of taking this much liquidity out of an economy. So, so is it going to be a mild recession, a severe recession? I don't know because there's nothing to compare it to. Now, now we know what Volcker did, you know, back in the 70s in response to uh, what I'll call the Carterflation. Uh, and now we got Bidenflation. Um, you just can't, you can't allow for that degree of macroeconomic stimulus without creating inflationary pressures and inflationary pressures by their very nature um, force the dollar to be worth less today than it was the day before we um, injected all that liquidity in the economy. You're, you're not in your head, Scott. I mean, you're, you're not an economics professor, but you're a historian. Yeah. And history says that there's going to be some rough economic times ahead. Uh, it's looking that way. Just the que- there, there are a whole bunch of questions here, a lot of uncertainty. I mean, um, when I heard these interest rates may be going up again, I thought about Volcker. Um, now the question is, but I mean, he got he put up to twenty percent exactly, yeah. exactly. We ended up in a recession that lasted until what nineteen eighty two or there. And I think the Fed lending rate today is about one percent. Right. Okay. Um, so try that on for size. Well, there and there's there's a bunch of questions we don't know. I mean, if for instance we do go into a recession, any kind of a of a, of a downturn, how long will it be? I mean, in twenty twenty, the markets went down for about five weeks in a row, and then we had a sudden resurgence. Um, are we going to see that happen in this case? I don't know. Um, we're still seeing consumers spending money. Uh, I was talking to a guy locally here who said that he's still getting lots of business at his restaurant. Consumers are spending money. People are buying airline tickets, despite the fact that airline fares have gone up 38% over what the past year. Uh, people have pent up money from COVID they're, they're, they're using. But of course, the question is going to be, number one, how long is that going to last? And number two, with all these other pressures coming on, such as higher gas prices, higher inflation, uh, what is that going to mean in terms of Americans' willingness to continue spending over the long term? I'll give you two anecdotal examples, and these are anecdotal, but I think they will eventually become far more mainstream. I've got somebody in the uh, in the home supply business, and the builders have always been paying on time. I mean, these are good builders. These are competent people, successful businessmen and women. Um, they're now asking him, can they have a little more time? 
Can the 30-day go to 45-day? Can the 45-day go to 60-day? That's anecdotal, but that's real. I mean, that's very, very serious. I'm not sharing this story with you because I've not seen you. I normally see you at the gym, didn't see you yesterday. But um, I'm on my way to the beach Saturday, and I stopped to get gas. And I'm always kind of plundering around and checking with people to see what they're thinking. Uh, they don't know I'm a radio show host who, you know, puts their business on on the airwaves and probably don't care, to be honest with you. But I see a, a black gentleman walking out of the store with a Gamecock shirt on. Well, I mean, I, I'm a Gamecock fan, so I'll see the Gamecock. We're kind of brothers in Gamecock uh, land or Gamecock distraught. So he walks <laughs> to the pump. I'm on this side of the pump. He's on the other. Um, I kind of look around the pump. He's there. I say, man, the, I didn't say it to him, but I kind of mumbled. Man, these gas prices are killing me. In, in a nanosecond, he says, you no kidding. You you got that right, you know, and that kind of opened the door. And I said, uh, okay, here we go. I said, um, yeah, I know Trump kept things going. I know Trump always had something stirred up, and, and I know he said things that made people mad. But it does seem to me the economy was much more solid when he was president. The black guy said, I always had money in my pocket. Hmm, okay. Then I said, I'd vote for him again. The black guy said, I wish I had my vote back. Combine that with Mike Rickenbaugh Friday morning being on the show saying he goes to a barber and there are six or seven other African-American men in that barber shop. They are far more willing to listen to what Republicans have to say about this America first phenomenon, you know, within the party. Is that anecdotal or is that widespread? I think we're I think is a trend. Um I was, I sent you a copy of the article. Mm -hmm. um, I got a call from Politico last week asking me to do, if I could see some comparisons between, on the one hand, Joe Biden and the other, Gerald Ford, and, and the uh, the um, reporter also pointed out Jimmy Carter. There have been some, some comparisons drawn there. And I said, yeah, there are some comparisons, and I, I drew a couple. For instance, we have, you know, Gerald Ford comes into office after a president resigned, who likely would have been impeached. We have Biden coming in after a president has been impeached. Uh, but I said the thing that I see as common with all three of them is a lack of messaging. Uh, what is the message here? What I see simply are a bunch of policy proposals, and they're, and, they're, and they're reactive. They're not proactive. And so Americans are sitting there going, what in the heck is going on? What is this administration trying to do? And, and I think that what you're getting at is part of, that, part of the problem there. What we're seeing are higher gas prices. We're seeing higher inflation. There's talk of stagflation now. Good luck dealing with that. Mm. And Americans are very concerned. They're looking for leadership, and they're not finding it. And this is why I've said in the show repeatedly over the past few months, I am so disappointed with this president because he doesn't seem to have an idea how to handle the situation. But where do the Democrats go from here, Scott? I mean, once it, I mean, you know, I mean, Biden's not going to fix this. I mean, you, you and I disagree about his cognitive capacities. I respect the fact that you don't think he's got some issues. I personally do. I think the, the administration is run by Obama acolytes who still, I mean, I, I'll say this. I don't think the people in the White House care that gas is $5 a gallon. It may Im impede a political agenda. It may cause them um, consternation on the campaign trail. But I think they have um, accepted as some kind of a religion this new green energy deal. And if the market forces don't dictate, government policy will. So I don't think the, the, the Democrat operatives running the White House are deeply concerned about how much you and I are paying for gasoline, except that it could cost them some votes in the midterm elections. Well, that wouldn't explain why Biden then is willing to open up all of these leases to oil and gas companies, and the oil and gas companies are saying, well, hold on a second. Um, 
in fact, there have been a number of cases where those people who are supportive of energy uh, and environmental policies are getting mad with Biden. That's one example. Uh, what I think the problem the administration is having is, again, this is part of the problem with the Democratic Party is they're at war with themselves. They don't know what direction they want to go. I mean, AOC just recently came out and said that she thinks that we need to that the Democrats need somebody else other than Biden to lead the party. But who? Well, that's the question. Okay. That's going to be the question. And it, ra- it raises a question in my mind, which is if Biden does decide to run in 2024, um, are we going to see someone from the progressive wing challenge him for the nomination like we saw in the case of Gerald Ford in 1976, like we saw in the case of Jimmy Carter in 1980? Uh, are Democrats, at least some Democrats, going to be so fed up with him, they're going to say it's time for, for, for someone different and that's only going to make the Democrats' problems even worse when it comes to winning votes. When you look at the Republican Party and you see J.D. Vance and you see Josh Hawley and you see uh, Ron DeSantis, I mean, there's a bitch there. I mean, if not Trump, then it's Hawley or it's, it's, you know, it's one of these other America First advocates proponents. When you look at the Democrats, I just don't see a bitch there. It's almost like Biden by default. And once you go, what do you, Kamala Harris after that? Uh, it, I mean, I just think the Democrats have really created a big problem by selling their soul to the Obama doctrine and the Obama doctrine without Barack Obama is perceived as somewhat of a political empty suit. See, I, I think it's more than that. I think we have a party here that just has so many different constituencies it's trying to to bring under its umbrella that it, it's having difficulty trying to figure out how to please all of them at the same time. And the problem is you usually can't do that. You've got to figure out a way then to develop a message that will please the, the largest number possible. You simply can't please everybody at the same time. And this administration just doesn't seem to have an idea how to do that. Uh, and, and the end result is you end up with this messaging that really is non-existent. Uh, again, reactive policies. And so you do see a lot of Americans saying, boy, I really made a mistake back in back in 2020. But the one constituency they're bleeding is, is the working class. The American working class have basically migrated from... The Democrat Party, the labor union, some of the uh, the the American, I mean, and we'll get to the question I asked you uh, in the next segment. But but it, it's called the 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 reaction to some of these coastal elites and and extreme liberal policies have cost them a lot of ground with the American working and class. And that's one of the reasons why people thought, why well, the Democratic Party thought Biden would be so helpful, is because he could reach out to the labor unions who would move toward Donald Trump. And instead, what we're seeing here is, again, a lot of these individuals, and it's not just the working class. We see individuals, white-collar workers saying, this, this, is, this has me worried. Um, yeah, my business might still be doing very well. Again, the, the guy I talked to owns a restaurant here in town said his profits are way up, but he's, his labor costs are way up as well. And that does have – it concerns him. How long, how long is this going to last? And there's going to be – there, there's going to be a point, I think, at, at which America is going to say, okay – I had all this pent up cash. I need to start conserving more of it now. Well, I think we're almost there. Yeah. I think we're real close. Jamie Dimon says September is when the consumer runs out of the excess capital or the excess liquidity that was put in the mm-hmm. economy via Fed action and government policy. Take a break. Come back. I got a, I got kind of an interesting Scott and I talked during the break, and I want to ask him on the air um, if he were to accept a certain challenge, where would he go and what would he do? Take a break. Back in a minute. I want to get to the Rice race specifically here in just a second. The Rice, Rice, Arthur, uh, the seventh congressional Republican primary in just a second. But Kaufman's written, Dr. Kaufman's written several books. And, and I asked him earlier, why don't you write a book about Trump? And he says, I don't think I could be objective. I, I don't think it'd be fair for me to try and do a serious endeavor like that going into the deal, knowing that I have this predisposition. 
I'm predisposed to believe a certain thing about Donald Trump. Is that a fair counting of yes, our, and I, of our and conversation? I said the same thing about Bill Clinton. That's yeah. why I couldn't write a book about, about, about Bill Clinton either. Because you have a strong held opinion yes. about the, both of those men's, uh, men. But, but then I said, what about uh, the Trump voter? And that gets a little more complicated because who is a Trump voter? Who gets the right to define uh, what a Trump voter is? But, but I asked you, I said, okay, if you were doing the research that it took to seriously attempt to understand the Trump voter, where would you start? I mean, when you research a book on Gerald Ford, you go to a certain place and talk to certain people. If, if Scott Coppin, Dr. Coppin was enlisted as part of your job to go and write a book about the Trump voter, where do you go? What do you do? Uh, Rust Belt. That's where I would start is the Rust Belt. I mean, here we have an area that's been historically very strong in terms of union membership. Uh, unions historically have supported, have been a strong Democratic constituency, yet we've seen this shift uh, toward toward Trump among among these among workers in the Rust Belt. What is it that changed their mind? What is it that led them to support someone like Donald Trump? That's where I would begin. It wouldn't be, of course, where I would end, but it would certainly be where I begin. I want to know more about those individuals and what shifted their opinions. What sorts of questions do you ask when you're researching and trying to get to the bottom of that that storyline? That that is very, I mean, it, it's confusing. I mean, it really is. How does this guy, who's a billionaire from Manhattan, uh, maybe a billionaire, maybe not, a multimillionaire, at least a multimillionaire from Manhattan, supermodel Y, private jet, name on buildings everywhere, how does he go to the Rust Belt and resonate with those people, what sorts of questions do you ask? I'd probably start with general questions, such as, for instance, why do you believe? Don't start with them specifically in terms of their beliefs, but why do you believe in general we've seen this shift taking place, uh, moving from you know being more blue to more red? Um, uh, what impact do you think globalization has had on, you know, get a little more specific, what impact do you think globalization has had on those, those sentiments? And then as I get go from the general, I'll start getting a little more specific as I feel I've gained their trust. You know, how about you? What are your feelings on these issues, your personal feelings? And if they won't even talk about it, how did you vote in 2020? How did you vote in 2022, 2024? And why? What was it that led you to go down that road? I'm going to read this. This is CNN politics. I think if anybody's going to give uh, the pro Ross account or anybody, mm. uh, I guess, pulling for Ross in the, uh, in the mainstream media, I want to read this real quick. Mm. And I want to get your take on this, Scott. Um, can a Republican House member from a deep red state who voted to impeach Trump, as Representative Tom Rice did after the Capitol riot, win a GOP primary in 2022? The first test will come on Tuesday, when Rice, perhaps the most surprising name on the list of 10 Republican members who joined Democrats in impeaching Trump, faces six challengers led by State Representative Russell Fry, who has the former president's endorsement. Rice is the rare Republican who initially condemned Trump after the insurrection, of course, voted to impeach him afterward and continues to be critical of Trump even as he fights for his political life. His bet that his deeply conservative record will win out in a district that previously has elected him five times. Trump has been typically bombastic in his denunciations of Rice, who had been a staunch ally until the insurrection. Make sure we get that word in twice. <laughs> a coward who abandoned his constituents by caving to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the radical left over Rice's vote to impeach in none of the primary candidates. If none of the primary candidates win a clear majority, the top two vote-getters will match up in a runoff um, to decide the nomination. Uh, you say what to CNN's accounting of the race that is underway as we speak? Rice can hope, but, I mean, 
I, I think he's he's not he's certainly not going to get the, the 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 most votes in this primary. I think it's going to go to Fry. Um, I mean, listening to your listeners, seeing the poll numbers, talking to people myself, the seeing what happened at the debate uh, that you did a great job um, uh, overseeing. The the anger at Rice over that vote is palpable, and he no few people in this district are prepared to forgive him for that. Um, so he can talk about his his conservative record. That's not what the voters are focusing on. They're furious with him over that vote. And you think that they'll settle that score when given the opportunity, and they're being given the opportunity today? Absolutely, yes. You you. you said something earlier, and it's very interesting to me that you would say this, that, you know, um, you listen to Rice try and defend his vote. As someone who was a bit, um, I mean, you don't have a dog in that fight. You know, the Republican primary voter, Tom Rice, Russell Rice, you don't have a dog in that fight. What did you make of Congressman Rice's explanation or defense of why he voted the way he did? Well, I mean, I could argue, I don't know the guy personally, but um, I think he, from from his point of view, he sees it as as a, an issue of principle, but also as an issue of law. Um, but I think one of the thing is that, and, and I, you know, again, I don't know him, but looking at people like Donald Trump, I've seen this with Joe Biden. If you back down from position you've taken, that's a sign of weakness, and you could get a charge them with flip flopping. That may be part of it too. That he he decided okay. These are the reasons why I voted this way. And while I may have made a mistake doing that, I am not going to admit to that. Because if I do, if I don't double down, then I look weak. Again, I don't know if that's what's part of his thought process, but it could very well be. So what is the obligation that you have to your principles, your, your moral ethics, your North Star, in relation and juxtaposed to the desire of the constituency. I mean, you would agree there has to be some balance there. That's not your job. I mean, the, the people of that district sent you there to do that job. That's not your seat in Congress. That seat belongs to we, the people. Um, how do you balance that from your perspective? You don't know the guy, but let's say um, Congressman, generic Congressman A, you know, has a, has a vote to take. And his personal disposition is one thing. His constituency's feelings are something different. How do you balance that? How do you square that up? That's a tough one. Um, but I think that you know, if you're elected by your constituents to do a particular job, then that's what they expect you to do. And that maybe in that particular case, you might have to do some compromising of your principles. Um, this is one of the reasons why I have no desire to get into politics. Um, because I'll use a I, real complicated yeah. word. You ready? Squishy. Yeah, <laughs> it gets squishy at times. I mean, it really does. I mean, it, life gets very squishy when you're put in that predicament. And, and we've seen this happen historically. I could talk about Woodrow Wilson compromising principles of his to get certain things done. Um, and so you end up having to do that at times. It's it's a tough, tough situation. Um, but I think it also plays into something that we've been talking about, which is that this growing anger at the establishment itself. These are people who will go whatever direction the wind takes them. I mean, I've written on Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford would take one position with a Democrat on a a policy when a Democrat was supporting it, take a totally different position on the same policy if a Republican was supporting it. So, again, it's the world of politics. Exactly. It is the world of politics. Do we have a call? Let's go to the phone. Here is Carl. Good morning, Carl. 
Hey, what's going on? Can you hear me okay? Hey, Carl, how are you? I'm good. Yeah, we got, I can hear you. Um, okay, good. Ken, I just can't, um, can't put my head around just the, what's the word I want to, what's, what's the word I want to say? The contempt. That's the word I want. The contempt that Tom Rice just seems to have for everybody. I mean, he, he was throwing everybody under the bus yesterday. He's throwing Russell Fry under the bus. He's throwing Trump under the bus. And then he's got this new ad calling us petty and calling us uh, revengeful. Look, I mean, is, does he not understand that we could have sent uh, artificial intelligence to D.C. to just do the right thing as far as his votes are concerned, um, you know, as far as his conservative record, it doesn't take any, any, you know, it doesn't take any integrity to vote the right way. What it, what it takes is uh, a backbone to support somebody that is wildly unpopular, you know, with the opposition and to not cave in. And so he's taking he's taking all this out on us. So I'm glad I'm glad he uh, kind of glad he wasn't in the studio because he'd have probably um, put his hands on you and tried to throw you under the bus, Ken. <laughs> and he didn't want to do that because you work out, <laughs> and uh, you'd have tied you'd have tied them long skinny legs up in a figure four, and that would have been it. But I mean, I just came from frying rice this morning, and so. I mean, he's just got to he's got to kind of get his mind right. I mean, he he's not gonna come on, you know, Dave Baker's telephone and uh, call another Republican, basically a low income bum. I mean, what is he talking about? I mean, Russell Fry's out here working every day to feed his wife and his baby, and he's talking about how much money the man's making and how he's an empty suit. I mean, that's just basically calling him breath and britches. He's he's a, he's a nut. He's nothing. He's nobody. You can't do that on these Trump streets. What is he talking about? Thank you, so, Carl. Appreciate well, I, it. Well, let me continue. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, this is the last thing. You know, you know what I'm gonna come with now. Now, I was I was a little bit wrong about Southern Florence County because they chopped up Florence County kind of like they chopped up Sumter and Orangeburg. It seems like 41 and Johnsonville. That part is seventh district. So. Vote in the in the Republican, but somewhere in between Johnsonville and Lake City, they got the tan yard because I know Lake City is sixth district. Yep. But Manning, please, uh, all of Clarendon County is sixth district. Get out and vote. You you're gonna be surprised how how um effective that's gonna be voting against Clyburn in this Democrat primary. I voted no on all those all those questions after I fried rice and. Um, Williamsburg County, all of Williamsburg County, Hemingway, King Street, Greeleyville, everybody, go and vote in that Democrat primary. Y'all are y'all are uh, sixth district. So let's do this today. And I mean, I got a lot more to say, but Tom Rice says he's off the chain. Thank you, Carl. Appreciate that. Carl wants people to vote in the Democrat primary against Jim Clyburn, the Addison guy, <laughs> is who I think he's. I'm encouraging others to go vote for. That's kind of a, a tried and true trick in American politics, crossing over and voting in the primary. The primaries are selections. The uh, the generals are the elections. By the selection, I mean the Republicans select their nominee. The Democrats select their nominee. Look, what Carl said, I heard all day yesterday. 
a certain degree of contempt. I mean, you were nodding your head. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you start in frustration, anger breeds frustration. Frustration breeds anger. Been there, done that. It never looks good. It never looks good in a political campaign when someone comes across as angry or frustrated or bothered by a certain set of circumstances. And I heard all day yesterday from listeners and and I guess, uh, you know, uh, comrades of mine, uh, just the level of contempt that they seem to detect in the, in the Rice campaign. And, and, and Dr. Cobbin, I, I would argue this, the level of contempt that the Republican establishment demonstrates against the Trump uh, organization, th- th- this bond, uh, you talked about the Rust Belt. For whatever reason, you, you can like it or not, but, but it's there. There's a bond that this movement has with its central figure and what I'll call working class Americans. It's intense. It's loyal. Um, it's not monolithic. There are different levels of intensity, different levels of commitment. But but I think the Republican establishment, the quicker it understands, this ain't your grandfather's Republican Party any longer. That bus has left the, um, what do I say? That horse has left the station. That train has left, left the barn. barn. Um, this is a new iteration of the Republican Party. Get used to it. It is a movement. The question is going to be this, I think. Is Trump prepared to allow the movement to develop without him? Um, There was a report that came out last week that Trump is thinking about jumping into the race for 2024. I believe he's going to do it. I personally believe he's going to do it. And I think I have my reasons for believing that, but I think one of them is that he likes to be in the limelight And I think that he needs to be seen as the continued leader of that movement. He he doesn't seem to understand that maybe it's time for him to step back and let the movement evolve as as it might. Um, And the question then becomes, how is the Republican establishment going to deal with that? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, Trump will not have any choice at some point in time but to let the movement evolve. I don't know that he's ready yet. I mean, I think he realizes sooner or later this movement takes off and goes somewhere without me being the central figure. But I'm because I'm Donald Trump, I want to be the central figure for as long as I can. Um, the, the point I'm trying to make, and I think you would agree to this, um, there's something happening there. And and I think I, I do think Carl nailed it. That there's a lot. I don't think it's just exclusively to Tom Rice. I think he's kind of the figurehead, the example, the resident example of that right now. But I think there's a high degree of contempt. But between uh, both parties of the political hierarchy and this Trump phenomenon, the unwashed, the unclean, uh, you know what I mean, the uneducated. How many times have we heard of the uneducated white voter? I mean, I've heard that. Uh, Years. Uh, you know, the, um, the core of Trump's world, the core of Trump's support is the uneducated white voter. And there's a degree of contempt that they, that they say those words when they say it. But we're also see- we are seeing, though, some of this distance. I mean, Georgia would be a great example of it, where Trump-endorsed voter, Trump-endorsed candidates, uh, the voters there said no. Uh, doesn't mean they're against the movement, yeah. but it does mean they want Trump to separate himself from all of that. Just the question is, is he prepared to do that? Very well said. Thank you for your Thank time. You. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Here's Jamie. Morning, sir. Good morning, guys. I uh, I think uh, I, I thought Rice came across pretty strong yesterday, but he is so tone deaf 
to the people he represents. And I think Carl was right. Um, uh, he just came came across as, as bitter. And uh, but I mean, he he tried to um, state his case, but he just is tone deaf to to who his constituents are. And for the life of me, why in the world did he not abstain? And that's all I wanted to say. Thank you, Jam. Appreciate that. You know, I think that's a fundamental problem in the Republican Party today across the board. I don't think Tom Rice is exclusive to this. The Republican hierarchy, a lot of the Republican leadership, they simply don't like the people who have decided to raise up in mass um, and speak kind of clearly and loudly about what they believe the party's priorities should be. Uh, and it goes back to something I said in the previous hour. Historically, the Republican Party's leadership has been able to kind of yank the chain and pull everybody back in line. You know, the um, the, the farmer, the construction worker, the, the, the person who doesn't have any political influence. And you can't do that but so long and get away with it. You just can't neglect understanding the plot of average Americans. You can't do that as a political party. You can't sell your soul to the wealthy, the connected. Uh, you know, th- those who have uh, the ability to make campaign contributions. And, and I think for a long, long, long time, the masses were convinced that's the way parties had to operate. And along comes someone like Trump, you know, the, the proverbial political wrecking ball, the political blunt instrument. And he says things like drain the swamp. The game is rigged. You've always known that. I mean, how many of you believe that politics in America today is not rigged? I mean, seriously, how many of you believe that, that when people go to Washington, that there's a degree of, a, of altruism and, and public service that exudes. And, and, and the Capitol is a place that we just, we always think about the plot of average Americans. I mean, nobody's that naive. But historically, the mailers, the commercials, and, you know, all, all the political uh, punditry that goes along with that, it worked. And, and sooner or later, somebody, or one day, somebody came along and said, um, that's a charade. That's a farce. That's not the way things are really done. You know how I know that's not the way things are done? Because I'm one of the ones that built that that farce, that charade. I mean, you know, Pelosi was in my office asking for money. And then, you know, Kevin McCarthy's in my office asking for money. Boehner's in my office. Paul Ryan's in my office asking. Mitt Romney's in my office. Do you think they're asking for money from me because I have a place in my heart for the average American worker? The average American family, no. And there's still people out there, guys, and I think this is where the contempt comes from. There's still people out there who believe because they've made a little more money than you have, live in a little nicer house than you do, a little more educated than you are, they are entitled. That's the word. They are entitled to direct the country's politics. And that's just not the case. Um, the uneducated white voter. I mean, that, that is so insulting when you really stop and think about it. Um, and they basically uh, created subsets and divisions amongst the electorate. And, you know, the meanwhile, they're fleecing the country of all its its assets. Um, I could go down the road. I mean, I, I could pick unique and very, uh, you know, uh, local examples of that sort of uh, politics in action. So so when and when I put something on Facebook last week and I went back and read it because it made me a little bit uncomfortable when I said, save me the righteousness and the nobility and the virtue. I mean, no, nobody's in it for righteousness or virtue or nobility. You know, when some of these people who support Tom Rice say, you know, a vote against Rice is a vote. Rice did the noble thing, the, the virtuous thing, the righteous thing. Uh, and that's why we need to send him back to Washington because he's a man of integrity. Mm. I mean, do you know Russell's not a man of integrity? You know, Barbara Arthur's not a lady of integrity. 
I mean, I find Ken Richardson to be very much a man of integrity. I would argue that Garrett Barton has acquitted himself as well as anybody when it comes to integrity, but, but they're not in on the fix. The fix is in place. Um, the last thing I would have done if I'm Rice is talk about me being on the ways and means, the powerful ways and means. How many average Americans' lives are better today because the, the senator or congressman or state uh, representative is on the ways and means committee? Uh, I would never make that part of my campaign. I would make it part of my, you know, once I'm in office and talking about, you know, uh, the issues of the district. We, we've got an infrastructure problem in this district because of the growth along the Grand Strand. Um, I think that's very appropriate to talk about, you know, being on the ways and means allows me to be in the room when some of these, um, some of this money is appropriated, allocated, and I'll make sure we get our fair share. But, but how many people really believe that, that if you elect someone who's on the ways and means, that improves the, you know, kind of your stance in life or your walk in life? No. I mean, I think when people hear ways and means and powerful committees, you know what they hear? They are insider, you know, establishment, elitism. And that's kind of where the, the public's head is. And you can accept that or you can just refuse to go, you know, you can refuse and, and lose elections. I, I just think there's a universe of people right now who are passionately committed to a political movement that is going to define Republican politics for probably the balance of my lifetime. And I think it's a good thing because I think bottom-up political movements or, or the most long-lasting, most effective, and most transformative. Take a break. Back in a minute. You know, there's a theory, and there, I'm a big sports fan. Watch baseball, basketball, football. Golden State, I think, beat the Celtics last night. Braves won again, but Ozzie Albies broke his foot, is what you were yeah, telling me there. He fractured his foot, so he'll be out for a bit. Unfortunately. Uh, yeah, uh, but a broken ankle, a broken foot, is better than a sprained ankle. I mean, it doesn't sound like it, but a broken bone in your foot is uh, will probably keep you out keep you out less games than what they call the proverbial high ankle sprain. Uh, that's very bothersome. I want I want to go there. Stay in the world of sports for a second, because there's an old saying in sports: if you listen to the fans, you'll be sitting with the fans sooner or later. But that's not democracy, guys. But I mean, that's not representative government. Um, yeah, I mean, if you listen to the fans and the fans say that Mike should start over, Dave is running. I mean, okay, that that's but 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 sports is the ultimate meritocracy. I mean, you're good or you aren't. I mean, the good ones play. The, the, the ones that aren't very good are backups. That's just the nature of sports and competition in the marketplace of athleticism. But, but, but somebody tried to use the analogy yesterday to me about, you know, listening to your constituencies, voting your consciousness in, in contrast to listening to your constituents. So they use that sports analogy. Because um, I've said it before. You listen to the fans, you'll sit with the fans sooner or later. You better play who you think you should play and start who you think you should start. And, um, you know, kind of yeah, use your players and managers aren't elected no, to represent No, it's not a public trust. I mean, that manager didn't earn the public trust. I mean, exactly. the owner of the baseball team believes he's the guy that needs to be leading the franchise. And when he shows he's not, they'll make a, make a change. But I think you have an obligation to balance what my personal convictions are what, 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 the way I see this, but how do my constituents feel? What, what do they think? And that's what, I mean, I will never know the answer to this. Um, but, but who did Rice counsel with when he cast that ballot? Anybody, his wife, his family, his consultant, uh, 10 or 12 donors, supporters. I don't have any idea. Um, I've tried to put myself in that position. Who would I have called the day I knew I was going to have to vote up, thumbs up or thumbs down on that election? Um, it would have probably been the mechanic, the farmer, uh, the, the person taking orders at the diner, 
uh, you know, a little bit politically intuitive. But but I certainly wouldn't have called, you know, the uh, the board members of the Dunes Club. I can assure you of that because I don't think you get an accurate representation of who it is puts you in office. And I think there are many, many politicians who go to that donor class and say, look, here's the issue. What do you think I should do? Many, many, many more people don't make political contributions than do. And I think today is a classic example uh, of the masses, you know, who are, let's be honest, they're seeking retribution, right? I mean, you folks out there are a little bit vindictive. Be honest. I mean, that, I mean, you are. You, you've admitted that. Well, I mean, you, you like Congressman Rush. You thought he did right. a good job as a congressman. I do. But you feel like there's a score you got to score. You got to settle. Well, I, I can't endorse what he did. Yeah, and so so and once again, you said it differently than I did. There's some there's some vindication that you're in pursuit of, and you think today you get a chance to settle that score and make that right. Okay, that's, that, that's, that's where we are. Let's go to the phone. Here is Mark in Branchville listening to WTQS this morning. Hey, Mark. Um, good job, guys, as always. Um, I just want to tell you, Ken, that I am a guy that has owned a truck with a double-A body on the back of it. Thank you, sir. Um, and, I get, and I guarantee you that um, the guy, that you, your friend that you lost was a friend of the family that, that your dad knew good and well. He could go to him at any point in time and could count on him. Um, and I think that's what we're missing here, and I think you're talking about – in that same conversation you had about the Republican Party, uh, what we have is is the same way we talk about. Uh, we all in business know that you know you always talk about the three generations. You know, the first one makes it, the second one kind of holds it on, the third one loses it. And I think a lot of times that's what's going on with the Republican Party. Is we've got a group group of people that think that they're just supposed to be there. I mean, Lindsey Graham being one of them. I mean, you know, and I think that's something that we can um, all look at as far as us. You know, going to the people that we can count on. As if I can say, I guarantee your dad could any time he needed something from that guy, all he had to do was ask him. That's true. Thank you, sir. Appreciate the call. A little bit of personal history there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think once a, a politician believes that he is a little bit, I mean, I'm not saying this about Rice. I'm talking about politicians in general. I mean, it really is, guys. Barack Obama didn't create Donald Trump. Donald Trump was inevitable. And the reason Trump was inevitable, Jim DeMint agreed with me yesterday. We lost a senator uh, during the phone call. I think he got in a bad reception area. But he was about to say, I mean, I, you know, I mean, he was heading this way um, probably as strongly as I do. The Republican Party had as its hierarchy a group of people who just didn't believe that they had to be held accountable to the wishes and, and volitions of the public. And I'm talking about the Republican primary base, the people that got them the job were not good at holding them accountable, that there was kind of a disconnect. And, and it goes back to this. What, what I believe, uh, the, the, the Republican hierarchy was real good at saying, okay, you peasants, it's Romney's turn. Okay, you peasants, it's Dole's turn. Okay, you peasants, it's McCain's turn. Why is it McCain's turn? Because we said so. Why is it Romney's turn? I mean, why not a Rand Paul? Why not some other um, unconventional candidate? Because that's not the way we do things around here. Remember how dedicated the Republican Party was to making sure Trump was not the nominee. I mean, just think of this, guys. Go, go, go back and, and remind yourself about the 2016 primary. The, the Republican hierarchy never wanted Trump as the nominee. Why? Because they built the machine. They had the patent on the machine. They ran the machine. You were subservient to the machine, and that's the way it had to be. 
And why does it have to be that way? Because they built lives and businesses and livelihoods predicated upon the, the actions and functions of government. And one day a guy shows up and says, that's not the way it has to be. And he's bombastic enough and arrogant enough and narcissistic enough. Um, I've always believed in a world of narcissism that the way to beat it is with a more narcissistic, uh, more bombastic, more full of himself individual. So really and truly, the Republicans got beat at their own game. You know, the, 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 they were I mean, they were shoveling BS with the best of them until Trump gets there. And he's just a little better at shoveling BS than they are. So he wins the BS contest. But but take your back to take yourself back to 2016. How many opinion leaders were for Trump? How many donors were for Trump? How many of uh, the political punditry were for Trump? Talk radio was a little bit interested, but I'll tell you why. We thought it would be a ratings bonanza. We thought it would be so interesting to watch the establishment take on uh, th- this this political bully or blunt instrument or whatever Talk radio uh, adjective you want to use there. Probably the first to say, hey, you guys think this is a joke. Uh, this may not be a joke. But the joke what, will be on you. Yeah, and what we get accused of is your audience. I mean, I don't know how many times you, I mean, you guys, would. you can't imagine how many conversations I have with Republican establishment figures who say, but that's your audience. You know how your audience is. You know how those they folks who listen. Sure they do. Well, it's not just minimizing. Uh, they try to disparage. They, they, yeah, there, there's a minimization thereafter, but there's also um, an insult, an intentional insult. You know, sure. we're the guys that run the party. We're the guys that make the money off the way the party uh, runs. Um, why are people so committed? Uh, let, let's use this district as an example. Um, amongst Rice's biggest supporters, why are they his biggest supporters? I mean, just go dig around a little bit. I mean, find out. Find out why the biggest supporters of Rice are really Rice supporters. I mean, is it virtue, nobility, integrity, honesty? Uh, that's what they'll say. No. Pull the curtain back a little bit, and you'll see the friendly relationship that business and, and livelihoods have with the government. That's the dirty truth. It, you know, we're beginning to see and sense more and more of this. But that's, I mean, that's just the nature of politics. It's the way it is. It's the way it's always been. But there's a group of people who are committed to making sure it's not the way it's always going to be. And here we are uh, with a passionate group of people believing it's time for change. Let's go to the phone. Yeah. And I'm not talking about specifically nor exclusively. exclusively uh, Trump endorsed more candidates than Russell Fry. That the uniqueness of this race is the endorsement combined with the impeachment vote. Uh, Kaufman said a second ago, you know, Trump loses some. Yeah, of course he does. Greg Maddox lost. Greg Maddox won 352 ball games. He lost, what, 200, 175, or 80? Still one of the most dominant pitchers, probably the best baseball player, uh, considering steroids. When you think about who did steroids and who didn't, I think you can honestly argue that Maddox is the best baseball player of that generation. He was a buck 70 when it started. He was a buck... 70 when, when it ended, so nobody accused him of being on But he lost games. He lost nearly 200 baseball games. Trump's not going to be perfect with his endorsements, but I would rather have it than not in a Republican primary. I can assure you of that. Go to the phone. David in the PD. Hello, David. Hey, good morning. Hey, I think one of the best calls today, man, lawyers are business people. I'm going to agree with that. And it's become an industry, and it, it saddens my heart, man, whenever I see what goes on down there in Hampton County 
that's when litigation becomes an industry. Uh, so I agree with that caller. It is lawyers. We, I don't think of it as, as a business, but it is. That's what this country has come to. And can I remember you were talking about uh, you went to see that Maverick, that new Maverick movie. I did. Top Gun. Okay. See, now Dave Baker, he's been in one of those planes, right? Didn't you fly an F-15? Day? Yeah, I flew in uh, F-16 uh, with the Thunderbirds. F-16, there you go. The only reason I bring that up, I, I see the contrast in America. You know, I was a, I was a young guy back in 1986, Top Gun. Uh, and I remember conversations we used to have. We talked about lawyers. There's too many lawyers back in the day. Uh you, I think about these industries, real estate. It wasn't very uh, easy to be a, a real estate agent when the interest rates were like 18%. And we go back to finance. My idea of finance back in those days was you would get a job with NCNB or CNS Bank or Bankers Trust. Uh, so when you watch how the world has evolved within these industries, I mean, you get a clear picture of what's going on here, and then you bring into the mix uh, back in 1986. What was the federal deficit? Uh, probably about $2 billion. What is it now? What did a government worker, just a bureaucrat, make in 1986? What do they make now? Uh, they actually go into what they call the double-dipper industry. And I'll, I'll pick on Trump for a second. That was pre-order of the deal with Donald Trump. But if you, if you just witness how all these things have come together where people make money, what, what's tangible, tangible about it? What do they make? What does a lawyer make? Let's get manufacturing back. Let's make goods. Let's make goods in Pampico in these little small towns. We got something tangible to work with. I'll leave you at that. Well, I mean, the art, thank you, David, the art of capitalism on a perfect economy. And I'm talking about GDP. You contribute to the GDP what you extract. The, the good of production you add, the value you add to the economy, you get paid fairly and proportionally. And that, we don't have that in the economy day. We have a very government-distorted economy. Talking about Top Gun, I thought of this, I don't know, over the weekend, drinking a beer, um, kind of brainstorming about this, that, and the other. And I began to think about Top Gun. You know why um, I'm happy Top Gun has done as well as it has because there are still those out there that aren't offended by uh, testosterone. We're not offended by manliness. We're not offended by risk-taking. We're not offended um, by masculinity. We're not bothered. But, but the main point of this, and, and I want to I stay here one second. You know the biggest point that Top Gun gets across that I think the liberals are driven crazy by? Remember the scene in the first Top Gun, because it's kind of duplicated in the most recent when he says, you are the best of the best. There's a reason you're in this room. You're better than everybody. You're more talented. You're more skilled. You're more dedicated. And when we have these missions that success or failure is predicated upon how good you are, we're sending the best. And in America today, I'm thinking about the military, woke month in the military, um, fly suits for pregnant women. Yeah, you know how, I mean, we, we our, our military has become not as woke as society in general, but has given in to some of the whims of political correctness and wokeness. And in that scene in 1986, when he says, there's a reason you're in the room. 
It's not because you're white, black, green, yellow, tall, short, voted for Biden, voted for Trump, Democrat, liberal. Your father made a contribution. to. No, you're in here because you're damn good. And you're going to have to be real good when we send you on some of these endeavors and mission in the name of national security. And in the most recent movie, I expected that to be a little bit different. I expected there to be a scene where they said um, everybody gets a fair shake. No, when it comes to bombing uh, and and Top Gun, nobody gets a fair shake. The best get to do it and everybody else doesn't. And that's the way it should be. That is a meritocracy. The military is no longer a meritocracy, but in that scene, and it's Superman don't fly. I understand creative liberties. I just expected less of that. I expected, I mean, we had females and African-Americans, and we should have females and African-Americans because they are the best of the best. Um, Everybody has a chance to be the best of the best. But that was a scene in the 80s, and it was a scene in in the most recent, and it was encouraging to me that somebody in Hollywood, because I got to believe, I mean, maybe I'm this weird. It goes against the. Well, I mean, sure, it does. I mean, it's, you know, we, we traditions don't, of Hollywood we these don't days. like meritocracies anymore, Rev, because meritocracies require what? Someone to be told no. Am I good enough to be a Top Gun pilot? No. You don't owe me an apology? No, not really. You're not good enough. These eight are, these 10 aren't. That's just the nature of, of that industry, and it's so it's not to only speak. great that they produced the movie, but the movie is baking, breaking the box office records. Yeah, break, and, and, mean, that, and that's encouraging to me. There, there's still some of us out there. There's still an ass of us out there <laughs> who aren't bothered. That's more than some. Well, I mean, who aren't bothered lot. by that. Let me be, but there, there are a buttload of us out there. How's that? That's cleaned up a bit. There are a buttload <laughs> of us out there who are not bothered by masculinity or aggression or competition, or someone being good enough and someone not being good enough when, when you know, meritocracies are required. That's encouraging to me. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937, Election Day. Get out and vote. Participate in the greatest government in the history of mankind. Let's go to the phone. Neil in Sumter listening to WDXY. Hi, Neil. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, uh, I've actually already voted. I uh, was hoping to talk to you all before I voted, but uh, you've had a busy morning. Um, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on the Secretary of State race. That was the only one that I I didn't have real good clarity on. Uh, There's opposition to to Mark Hammond, um, and I have a little trouble finding details. Do you guys know anything about the guy running against him? I do not, Uh, Neil. I I just assume Mark was Secretary of State for life. That's just kind of always been been my assumption. I'm sorry. I don't have any information. Well, and he ended up with our vote because I went, and I'll tell you that, if any listeners out there thinking about running for uh, any office, the research I found, a, a couple newspapers uh, had no response from the other candidate. Well, heck, if you can't if you can't respond to a, uh, a free call to uh, publicize your, your position, then then you must not be that interested in the race. Yeah. Thought, but when I see that, so. Anyway, I didn't know if you all knew anything about that. Uh, some other listeners out there might want to. And, and then one more thing. That third ballot issue, it was an easy one for me to, to kind of vote no on the Republican questions. The third one, I think, might be that if two people are sued, that they that the courts might just split it equally, even if one person's only 10% responsible versus 90. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what that's about. I think I think it means if you're found you know liable for X percentage, that's all you're liable for, not the not an equal split. 
But it, it's more that's confusing. I wish it would reference what law they want to change. Yeah, well, Neil, what it is, or here's what I, I'm speculating. I don't know this to be true. My, my curiosity is who got the Republican Party to put that as a ballot question. I mean, there's something more there that you and I aren't aware of. I and mean, I'm, I'm real suspicious about why that became one of three ballot questions. Somebody in, uh, in, on their radar probably gave a lot of money in the name of conservatism or America for whatever uh, to get that ballot question included. That's just, I mean, that's kind of an odd question, an odd way to engage the public with an issue like that. Yep. And I, and I would encourage all the voters to, to not just read those questions, but read them and then try and reword them in your mind. What are you really asking? It's kind of like, kind of like when uh, Alex Trebek would ask a question on Jeopardy. You could often figure it out because he wasn't really asking that question. There, there was, there's another question being asked there that might be more obvious. And that, that's how I, I reached my no conclusion on the other two. Yeah. Um, and I went ahead and voted yes on that one. I'm, hopefully it doesn't end up biting us someday. <laughs> Thank uh, you, Neil. Appreciate the heads up. Um, as it relates to Secretary of State, I got to believe that, I mean, Mark's probably done a poll and probably finds he's in good shape. And uh, if there were a hotly contested competitive race in the Republican primary for Secretary of State, I got to believe Mark would have probably called and asked to be on the air. Um, some of these, some of these down ballot races garner very little attention, uh, except for the person in that job, you know, department of agriculture, excuse me, the secretary of agriculture, the one I'm interested in is superintendent of education. Um, I think you've got a, um, and I'll say it, I mean, I think you've got, uh, more of the same with one of these candidates who may be in the runoff. I think Ellen Weaver, um, could be a kind of a change agent within, excuse me, within uh, public education, but she's going to run up on a lot of resistance. Um, the one interesting figure in this is the gentleman who advertised a lot on television, and I think he's spending his own money from what I'm gathering. Uh, is it Travis Bedson? If I'm not mistaken, I've seen a lot of his ads. Um, he has a picture with Trump on his Yeah, ads, he's got a picture he? of Trump. So, you know, he's an America first Republican candidate for superintendent of education. But, you know, as, as a former elected official who believes the only hope we have in improving our educational system in America is radical reform, major change, not tweaking, not twisting, not turning, not clipping around the edges, but but basically somebody like Trump, and I'm not saying Ellen is somebody like Trump, but I think she is probably the most noteworthy potential change agent we've had in a long, long time when it comes to public education and what probably needs to be done. We've got to introduce competition. I mean, we've got a, uh, I was thinking about the PGA a second ago, or you were asking me about Mickelson or something. Um, I mean, I, you know, and, and the PGA commissioner, Monahan is furious about these, uh, these players leaving the tour. Um, imagine how hard Monahan's job is. He runs a, a monopoly that is federally registered as a not-for-profit. How hard is it to succeed when you're running a monopoly that is registered as a federal not-for-profit. The absurdity of that is ridiculous. Um, golf probably needs competition. I would argue whether it's the Saudi back tour or not, um, the players need an option to go you know, play on this tour or that tour. It makes the tour better. But when Monaghan is furious about, I mean, he's, he's, he's mad because a, a monopoly that is federally registered as a not-for-profit all of a sudden has competition. It's similar to that in education. I mean, education in America today is a monopoly, and it's run by educators, and the educators become bureaucrats, and the bureaucrats become self-preservationists, and the self-preservationists don't have a lot of interest in how much better the education needs to be in America to allow our kids to compete globally. 
That's why we're failing our young people educationally in America today. We lack competition, charter schools, choice, um, you know, the uh, the money pinning on the backpack. How many times have I heard that in my political life? Whatever that per people, per people spending is, it needs to be attached to the kid's backpack and that kid go to the school, private or public, of their choice. Um, anything that invigorates competition in the marketplace of education, I am very supportive of. And I do use the analogy of the PGA and public education because, once again, they're monopolies and they just absolutely don't want competition because competition demands results. And right now, when you look at proficiency scores of us compared to the world, we're woefully lacking. The rest of the world spends less on education than we do. That They get better performance. The rest of the world spends less on health care than we do in America. And about 70% of the countries get better performance. Um, why is that? Well, I mean, you know why it is. The lack of competition. We don't have proper competition in our healthcare markets. We don't have proper competition in education. We don't have proper competition in a lot of things. And when, when you really look at the Trump phenomenon, and we talked a lot about that this morning, um, it's because those people who have um, cornered the market, you know, political favorite, uh, political favor is expensive, but it's very rewarding. And I would argue that, you know, I, I think we're part of this, and I want to be careful um, I think disagreement and and discussion is imperative. I think division has become far too lucrative. I love to have debate and discussion and dialogue. I think it's essential to getting us to a better place as America. Um, the divisive nature of the disagreements, and I mean, it's become very lucrative. And you know where I'm pointing to. I mean, we're a part of that, Rev. I mean, you know, we we're better on the air when people are angry about something, when people feel offended or threatened or bothered by, by government. Um, yeah, I mean, but, but we, we've got to get to a place where we don't so distort the market. And I think education has been distorted by, once again, self-preservationist bureaucrats who don't care much about whether your kid gets good education or not as much as they do uh, the checks in the mail and the pension will be there when, when needed. Let's go to the phone. Here's Bob in Florence. Good morning, Bob. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, yeah, I hope I'm not covering territory that you already covered because I, I missed most of the the morning show. I was out doing my patriotic duty voting. But um, Ken and Dave, I, I wonder if, if, if you've noticed the surge in uh, anti-Trump uh, dialogue and uh, people committing themselves to the anti-Trump side who were previously, eh, you know, maybe – uh, marginal or halfway or whatever. Ever since these um, these hearings started, uh, it's almost like they actually think that this is a um, a key to um, the elimination of Trump from uh, a political life. One in particular, well, Brett Baer, of course, ever since election night when he declared that four uh, percent of the vote in Arizona tells you that uh, it goes for for Biden. That was. Uh, that was a classic, but I just wanted to have, have, have you noticed this and, 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 uh, uh, what do you make of things like, um, uh, the attorney former attorney general Barr uh, coming out and saying the things that, that they're saying. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. I think, I mean, Barr understands where his butter is bread. I mean, where his bread's buttered. I mean, it's not the Trump world. I mean, Barr is a career bureaucrat. 
He's a product of Washington. I mean, he has surprisingly defended Trump in some way, shape, or form at certain times. But I think he got the memo. And the memo is we've got elections, we've got Trump-endorsed candidates, and you need to be on our team of anything that, you know, makes sure. Here's what the, the establishment is worried about. They're worried that Trump gets real. I mean, they believe his influence is waning. And they see the 22 midterms as a chance to reinvigorate some of the Trump momentum. In other words, if Trump wins against Rice, if Trump wins against Mace, if Trump wins in um, in Nevada, I think he's got a, a laxalt, if I'm not mistaken, is the endorsed candidate, uh, you know, for the Senate seat in a primary. Um, but but it, the interesting part of all this to me, Bob, is the people who try to explain the Trump phenomenon have so little interest in it. it, it I find it so curious. Um, how many Trumpsters sit around trying to explain the Trump phenomenon? How many America Firsters sit around drinking a cup of coffee or a cold beer saying, hey, are you an America Firster? I am too. Well, let's understand this better. It's only those trying to destroy it. It's, it's only those trying to impede its progress. Those are the people most interested. The people that give the, the most opinions on America First aren't America Firsters. I mean, it's kind of a, it's, it's an extracurricular. It's something that they look at. Okay, we have these political biases. Uh, I'm talking about establishment Republicans. Uh, the Lincoln Project. Let's use the Lincoln Project as an example. The Lincoln Project never tried to understand America first. The Lincoln Project never tried to understand the Trump phenomenon. They tried to destroy it. The reason they didn't want any interest in it is because they knew it was the end of their run. It was, um, you know, the... Uh, the the Schmitz of the world, I'm, I'm thinking of names here. Uh, I'm trying to tell you one who's not a pedophile. I mean, uh, all the others are proven to be pedophiles and criminals. There's one over there that I don't think has been in trouble. Rick Wilson. Or, yeah, Rick Wilson. I think he's been in trouble, too. Oh, has he? Yeah, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I mean, he, but he hated Trump. And, and you know, Republican establishment, that's good. If you hate Trump, then that's good enough. But, but the interesting part of all this, to me, is the America firster hardly ever tries to explain America first. I mean, I think I do because I have a job four hours, and I think I try to enthusiastically support and, and invite and, and bas basically say we, we'd love to have more under the tent. We'd love to have more a uh, part of the America First movement. But, but do you really believe CNN, ABC, NBC, CBS, and MSNBC broadcasting the January 6th hearings are going to drive a wedge between Trump and his voters or the America First movement? And those who are enthusiastically supporting, no, it probably intensifies. It probably has just the opposite effect, but it's the only hand they have to play. I mean, the numbers aren't in their favor. The Democrats have proven they can't govern. The Republicans have proven they can't beat Trump as much as he beats them. So America First is sitting in a very, very um, prime position when it comes to the 2022 midterms. We'll find out today. And then the 2024 presidential cycle but 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 no, I've not sensed. I mean, Barr, yeah, okay. Barr had some things to say uh, in agreement with the January 6th committee. But Barr's not thrown Trump under the bus. I mean, he, he said yesterday, I think, that um, he was detached from reality. But, but he basically says he was detached from reality because he wanted to hear nothing about the election except that it was stolen. And I think that's Trump's blind spot. I think if Trump had said, man, there are a lot of things we need to explain. There are a lot of things we need to get to the bottom of. There are a lot of things that don't make any sense. There are a lot of statistical anomalies out here that are unexplainable. They've never happened before, but they happen tonight? Really? I mean, I think he, I think he begins to really validate himself and, um, I don't know his standing within the movement, but, but he's made it a litmus test. 
Do you believe the election was stolen or not? And if you don't, I don't have the time of day for you. If you do, welcome aboard. And I think that is unfair to the movement. I think it eventually hinders how many more people want to be a part. I think had Donald Trump said, there are a lot of things out there that don't make any sense. There are a lot of statistical anomalies that I think need to be investigated that deserve, um, you know, where did Mark Zuckerberg, why did he spend this much money trying to beat us? I wouldn't say me, trying to beat us. Let's get to the bottom of it. Let's find out exactly what happened in Philadelphia. I think he takes off like a jet, but in typical Trump fashion, it had to be what? About him. They stole it from me. And either you believe that or you don't. And once again, we all have blind spots. I think that's being proven to be a chronic blind spot of his. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. A spirited show this morning, Election Day. Polls are open, have been open for about, what, two hours and nearly three hours. Um, we should have results uh, mid-evening. I would imagine polls close at 775-ish thousand votes to count. We'll see how it plays out, have a much better understanding and summary tomorrow morning on this very feeble attempt <laughs> at Radio Brilliance. Let's go to the phone. Here's Brian in Florence. Good morning, Brian. Hey, guys, we don't have to look very uh, far to actually see the uh, Republican establishment in the rhino. Uh, Lindsey Graham's proven to be that, and he continues to prove to be that. The day after the House passed their pie-in-the-sky gun control legislation, which was a collection of eight different bills all bundled together, he came out and said he was pro-Second Amendment and he would not vote for anything that would harm the Second Amendment. Well, we can see what he's done. He and 10 other Democrats and nine Republicans worked together to essentially agree on red flag laws, increasing the age to eight or 21 from 18 to buy a rifle. And he's literally going to bribe the states so that they will do the bidding for him. I have uh, lost all confidence in Lindsey Graham, quite frankly. I hope he's primary in 26. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. You know, it's one of the most interesting political relationships in America, the Republican primary voter in South Carolina and Lindsey Graham. I mean, it's always... Uh, in, in conflict. I mean, you know, there are days Lindsey makes you proud. There are days you want to, you know, drive him out of town. I mean, it's, it's, it's all over the place when it comes to, to Lindsey. The reason we've not taught gun laws is we've had this election that's been, you know, imminent and, and kind of, you know, the center center of attention. But but I've got a good bit of information here on what the Senate did, um, some things I can rationalize, some things I absolutely can't. I am not supportive of raising the age of 21. I am supportive of the additional funding to mental illness. I'm supportive of uh, expanding some of the juvenile background checks, uh, some of the networking. I think there's some software issues that have to be addressed to get the database more in concert one with another. And um, I'm absolutely supportive of that. Um, let's increase the funding for mental care or mental illness, uh, some of the care facilities. But but I'm not for raising the age. I think that the height of hypocrisy is to tell an 18-year-old, you can go die for your country in a foreign land but you can't buy beer and you can't buy a gun. I mean, that's just the absurdity of that. I mean, it's not even hypocritical. It's absurd that we live in a nation of lawmakers who can rationalize. And, and how, as mom sa- my mom said, how do you fix your mouth to say that? Um, hey, 18-year-old, get on this, um, th- this carrier and go fight for your country. Uh, but you can't go to the store and buy beer. Um, you can't, it's just, I mean, the, the, the contradictions there, you can elect the free to the leader of the free world, but you can't buy semi-automatic weapon. Um, 
you can't buy beer, but you can go off and fight for your country and die and be buried, you know, on um, on Hero's Hill. I mean, that, this is, once again, it's pat hypocrisy, and it becomes very absurd when we have that many consi- inconsistencies. Um, but but we'll get there. I mean, we'll talk a lot tomorrow. Maybe not tomorrow. Maybe by Thursday, uh, get some of the uh, some of the post mortem done on the election, and we'll go um, step by step, bit by bit, blow by blow on what some of the gun legislation is. But the caller is exactly right. I mean, Senator Graham, um, I mean, if Lindsey lived in Maine or, you know, somewhere like that, it, it's a little bit gray. I mean, excuse me, it's purplish. Uh, you know, it can go both ways. Republicans, one's uh, kind of one spell, Democrats at another time. But, I mean, this is a very red state. And every Republican voter I've ever bumped into says Lindsey's a rhino. But he gets elected over and over and over again. To me, it's a testament tribute to how good a politician Lindsey is to stay in constant conflict with the very people you need to send you back to Washington <laughs> and for whatever reason or however, uh, convincing them that he's always he must straighten the best himself choice. out about every six years. Well, and Lindsey's done a good job of avoiding a real good candidate. I mean, I, you know, I'm trying to think back in his recent elections, uh, underfunded candidates, not real good candidates. It would be very interesting. To watch Lindsey run against a well-funded, competent, um, qualified candidate. That would be a very interesting, but but to his credit, he's done a good job of making sure he keeps those sorts of people um, off the playing field. Let's take a break. We'll be back uh, with our Monday Pepsi of Florence trivia on Tuesday. Back in a minute. 